Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com A lot has been said about the difficulty Donald Trump has had getting the Republican establishment behind him. But early on, one did back Trump and became one of his closest advisors, Republican Jeff Sessions of Alabama. NPR's Elsa Chang traveled to Alabama to find out more about Trump's fiercest supporter in the Senate. They're the odd couple of politics, a New York City tycoon and a guy from the Deep South. Donald, welcome to my hometown. Mobile, Alabama. One man is mild-mannered, the other famous for bold exaggerations. Look at him. He's like 20 years old. But this year, Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions are linked by their shared hardline view on one central issue. Thank you for the work you put into the immigration issue. I'm really impressed with your plan. I know it will make a difference. Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III actually grew up two hours north of Mobile in a tiny town tucked in the hills called Hibbert. It still has no cell phone service, and the entire town is one block long. It takes a logging truck less than a second to drive past the whole place. When Sessions grew up here in the 1950s and 60s, Hibbert had only about 10 homes. The senator declined to be interviewed for this story, but Les Johnson showed me around. He's a friend who grew up in the area with Sessions. Except with the train coming through on occasion, it was quiet. Still is. Uh, 
there was woods all around you, so you were literally insulated from the rest of the world. And Johnson says that insulation made for a very sheltered childhood. Even as the civil rights movement unfurled across the South, Johnson says Hibbert was a small oasis. We had one TV channel. And every day, from first through twelfth grade, the boys rode a bus for only white kids and thought nothing of it. Now, the school was segregated, but but every school in the South was segregated at that point in time. It was just the way it was. And uh, we never thought about the fact that it was, I guess somebody to ask, ask us, we would have known, but it was just the way it was. Sessions sought a future outside Hibbert. He became a lawyer, and in 1981, President Reagan made him U.S. attorney in Mobile. That was when he brought a controversial case against three black civil rights workers for voter fraud. And Hank Sanders was one of their defense lawyers. He's also a Democratic state senator in Selma. And see, they call them voter fraud cases, and we call them voter persecution cases. Not prosecution, persecution. And it was all about stopping black folks from voting, in our opinion. Sessions got zero convictions in the case, but it wasn't a career setback. Soon after, President Reagan tapped Sessions to be a federal judge, and the issue of race would follow him again. During the confirmation hearings, a Justice Department lawyer alleged Sessions had called the NAACP communist-inspired and un-American. A black prosecutor who worked closely with him also testified that Sessions had called him boy. Sessions denied all of this at the hearing. I am not the Jeff Sessions my detractors have tried to create. I am not a racist. I am not insensitive to blacks. I have supported civil rights activity in my state. I have done my job with integrity, equality, and fairness for all. But 10 senators on the Judiciary Committee weren't convinced and voted him down. Now, today, Sessions' defining issue is immigration. He's the most vocal about it in the Senate. He opposes a path to legal citizenship for immigrants who are here in the U.S. illegally and even supports limiting legal immigration to protect American jobs. For Hank Sanders, all that points to Sessions' attitude on race. I, I really don't think that he thinks that, that black folks are equal human beings. And I don't think that he thinks that the Hispanic people are equal human beings. I've never seen any racism in Jeff Sessions, and he's been at this table for years and years, and I have never seen one whiff of it. That's Matt Metcalf. He's part of a group of men called the Captain's Table. They're successful lawyers, scientists, and businessmen in Mobile. And they meet every week to talk politics. Sessions has been dropping by for years. This is Jeff Sessions' seat, by the way. Is it really? Yes. So you're in, you're in a hot seat. These men have heard Sessions take hits on the issue of race. And for Richard Rogers, these charges are leveled so often against Southern whites, it's offensive. The stereo typical view of the southern politician or the southern police officer or the southern anything is really a caricature. We're dumb, we're rednecks, we have no view outside of racist views. And around this table, they are offended by Trump's inflammatory comments about immigrants. When I asked the group if anyone was a Trump supporter, there was a long silence. Then Scott Hunter chose his words carefully. Now that Jeff is on the Trump train, I tell people when they ask me, well, I'm for uh, Jeff Sessions. And if he's with Trump, I'm for Jeff Sessions. 
Count that as a ringing endorsement for Jeff Sessions. Elsa Chang, NPR News. Uh, there's a lovely, sad Negro spiritual <coughs> that Ivy's brother just... Uh, are you all right? Uh, anyway, Ivy's brother used to sing this when he came in from the tobacco fields. Mm, mama, his master's going to sell us tomorrow. Yes, yes, yes. Mama, his master's going to sell us tomorrow. Yes, yes, yes. Mama, his master's going to sell me. Well, as Black Lives Matter protests have swept the country in recent weeks, we end today's show with the story of one dishwasher at Yale University who has decided to take the university's history of racism into his own hands, or his own broomstick in this case. Corey Menefee worked for Yale for about eight years. In June, as he was cleaning a dining room in Yale's residential dorm, Calhoun College, Menefee stood on top of a table and used a broomstick to break a stained glass window depicting enslaved Africans carrying bales of cotton with a broom handle. Menefee said the image is racist and degrading and that he had become sick of seeing it every day. Calhoun College is named after former Vice President John C. Calhoun, one of the most prominent pro-slavery figures in U.S. history. For years, students have demanded Yale change the building's name. Yale University police arrested Menefee and charged him with reckless endangerment and felony mischief. But on Wednesday, after Yale students and community members demonstrated in support of Menefee, Yale University announced it has dropped the charges. We're joined right now by Corey Menefee himself, who broke the window at Yale University, as well as his attorney, Patricia Kane. And we're joined by Craig Stephen Wilder, author of the book Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Corey, let us begin with you. Describe what happened, what day it was, and what you did. Well, it was a typical work day. Um... I was do, performing my normal duties, cleaning, scrubbing, and uh, we had our little break, our little ten-minute break, and uh, I don't know, something inside me just said, you know, this, that thing has to come down. You know, it's a, it's a picture. It was a picture that just, you know, as soon as you look at it, it, it just hurt. You, you feel it in your heart, like, oh man, like, you know, here in the 21st century, you know, we're 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 in a modern era. Where, where we we shouldn't have to be subjected to those primitive and degrading images. Describe the stained glass at Calhoun College at Yale. Well, it was a small it was a small uh, piece of glass that was no bigger than a, a tablet. It was a uh, it, it depicted a male and a female, both appearing to be African American, walk standing in a field of uh, white white. Crops would appear to be cotton, with baskets over their head, and I believe one of the f- the figures were actually smiling, which is like so condescending. Because looking back on slavery, like it wasn't a happy time for African Americans. Now, uh, the university has been embroiled now for quite some time in in protests over this issue of Calhoun College. We, you are. You were, since you've been working there for eight years, were you aware of the student protest and the, and the, uh, uh, and the controversy that had arisen? 
Well, yes. Over the last year, uh, over the last year, I was actually uh, transitioned into Calhoun Dining Hall from Davenport Dining Hall. So I firsthand got to see, you know, how it was affecting the students and how the students felt about the name John Calhoun being uh, being donned on their college. And um, everything he represented, it was just, it's such a contradiction for what Yale University represents, because Yale University's motto is Lus et Veritas, which is Latin for truth through enlightenment. So if you're an institution of higher learning where you're trying to enlighten young people and, and train them to be productive members of society, why would you have a degrading image like that uh, blatantly displayed? Now, Democracy Now! reached out to Yale University for a response to your case, Gory Menefee. They issued this statement, quote, as part of um, the president's initiative in April to review Yale's history with regard to slavery, the Committee on Art and Public Spaces was charged to assess all of the art on campus, including the windows in Calhoun. After the window was broken in June, the committee recommended it and some other windows be removed from Calhoun, conserved for future study in a possible contextual exhibition and replaced temporarily with tinted glass. An artist specializing in stained glass will be commissioned to design new windows with input from the Yale community, including students, on what should replace them. So, Corey Menefee, you have started a major policy change at Yale University. But what's happened to you? Describe what you did as you looked up at the stained glass that you'd seen for a while. Well, I just basically uh, took a broom handle and destroyed the image. Uh, since then, you there, there's, there is a bit of regret because, as a, as a grown, grown adult with a sound mind and, and able to think, you know, you don't never want to result to those type of tactics as far as bringing change about. You want to sit down and you want to talk to people and you want to, you want to use your, uh, your intellectual skills. You're not, you don't want to physically just destroy something. I don't encourage anybody to just go ahead and destroy another person's or another entity's property because you don't like it. There's better ways to resolve it. However, the action that I did, obviously, there's a plethora of people who, who believe the same thing, who felt the same thing. So in that way, uh, I think my actions were justified because other people a lot of other people feel the same way I feel. I'd like to bring in Craig Stephen Wilder. You've written the book, Ebony and Ivy, Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. Put what's happened here at Yale and, and Corey's actions in context. 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 Looking at behavior in context. Now, whether he actually meant context, as I say it, I say the context is a system of racism, white supremacy. Context of, of what you uncovered about the role of American universities in slavery? Well, you know, the short of the story is that the American college is a product of the African slave trade and African-American slavery, that none of the colleges survived the colonial period without attaching themselves to that unfree economy and drawing money from, those, from that economy. Um, but in particular, what Mr. Menefee did, I find quite um, inspirational and interesting for a number of reasons. While the attention has been focused on him, a lot of the attention should focus on Yale's trustees and its administration. They had an opportunity to address this issue. Um, they've had multiple opportunities to address it. And they've declined to do that, and they've declined to do it for lots of what I think are really quite um, dubious reasons. Um, and... 
what you therefore end up with is um, an interesting problem that continues to get perpetuated. The conversation about what to do with the visual culture of slavery that's on our campuses, it's embedded in our uh, visual culture, it's embedded in our architectural culture. The problem of what to do has been a conversation that's actually happened between relatively pri privileged people. The alumni of elite institutions, the administrations of elite institutions, and um, students at elite institutions. And the group that's been missing are the communities that surround those schools and the people who actually do the hard work of running our institutions on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, excluded from the conversation have been the people who actually clean our offices, cook our food, um, you know, move the campus buses around. Um, but they actually spend a lot more time being impacted by those sort of visual reminders of slavery than most of the rest of us do. What is Yale University's link to slavery? Yale's link to slavery uh, start at the very beginning. You know, when the trustees met in 1701 to um, organize the college, then the collegiate school, um, as one historian points out, they were followed by their slaves to that meeting. Um, so slavery is at the beginning of Yale, and it continues um, to be the source of funding for Yale thereafter. For instance, in 1718, um, it gets money from Elihu Yale, who had engaged in the slave trade himself, um, a Welsh merchant. Um, and they named the school after uh, Yale. Uh, they, they take the name of Yale at that point. But they also continue to get funding from slavery and the slave trade thereafter. George Berkeley gives them a farm in the 17, late 1720s, um, a s small slave plantation in Rhode Island that they then rent out to fund their first graduate courses and their first scholarships. And so almost every decade in Yale's history, right up until the Civil War, is a story of Yale's relationship to slavery and the slave trade. And uh, Patricia, I'd like to bring you in. Uh, uh, your Corey's lawyer, the, the university has dropped the criminal charges, but he was fired, right? Well, technically, they're still pending until we go to court in July 26, at which time we expect for the court to decide they will not prosecute, and that will be the end of the legal proceedings but not the end of the problems for Mr. Menifee, who's lost his job and is about to lose his health insurance at the end of the month. And so what are you seeking to do? We're, we've, I've been trying to establish a dialogue with someone in authority at Yale. I have spoken twice with legal counsel, but there's no movement to bring the parties together and to find a resolution. I mean, Yale has a disconnect with its own people, its mm -hmm. alumni, its students, its employees, like Mr. Menifee, I think Yale needs to redeem itself by giving him his job back. That's a good place to start. Students trash university property all the time. There are never criminal charges. No one is ever kicked mm -hmm. off campus. They might take a little leave of absence. So in a, in a way, they want, Yale wants it both ways. They're kind of acknowledging, well, this was an offensive image because now we're going to inventory and get rid of them. But they're not taking care of the human being involved in this. Corey Menifee, do you want your job back? Yes, I, I most certainly would love my job back. And your response to them taking out the stained glass um, that showed images of slavery and uh, happy slaves? I think that's a, that, that, that's a wise and a, a good move on the part of Yale University. Craig Wilder, uh, you're a professor at MIT of American mm -hmm. History. You've written about all this. What do you think the university should do right now? 
I think the university has to take moral responsibility for its decision to um, its decision to not de-escalate this situation to begin with. Um, the students have been protesting now for actually not you know, for a few months, not for a few years, but for actually more than three decades. Um, this goes back to the 1980s and the 1970s. To remove the name Calhoun to re- to the from name the Calhoun, college. To rename the colleges that were named in the 1930s after slave owners and slave traders. Um, and so this has been a long-lasting protest, and Yale has actually been resistant to doing the right thing for a long time. which has been viewed more than uh, three million times at this point, features a young girl being attacked by a couple at a restaurant in San Antonio, Texas. Now, the girl was dining with her family after church at Chester's Hamburger Hamburgers restaurant in San Antonio and began streaming the encounter live on Facebook after the couple made racial statements. Now, uh, when this story first broke, there wasn't much context behind it, uh, but the woman in the video, Emerald Robinson, actually did another video afterwards giving some context. And what she alleges is that she and her family were waiting in line to order, and her 15-year-old sister had accidentally bumped into uh, the woman behind her, which then allegedly led to her calling uh, her 15-year-old sister a N-word monkey. Okay. Mm. So after that happened, uh, the girls went and told their parents about what occurred, and then here's how it escalated. Take a look. Okay, so now lots of yelling. People get angry. They get into fights all across the country. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in case, in, it, in the beginning of that video, it wasn't super clear, but I, but we know for a fact, the white woman first yells, "You're an effing n-word." Mm-hmm. Then the black woman says, "You're a honky," etc. So she, the in this case, the white woman happened to start the, as far as we can tell from this tape, started the the racial name calling. Now, and it's, that doesn't mean that's what happens in every instance. That's what happened in this instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, okay, the racial name-calling is horrible. But honky, I don't know why anybody would ever do that, or, or even a cracker. Those have no power at all, those names. So it's all you do is needlessly demean yourself and your, and your valid argument if you use those insults, because they don't do any good anyway. No, I don't know anyone who's ever been like, oh! You called me a honky. No, they. Some should. people will make the argument that their feelings were very hurt after they were called cracker. They're, or honky. they're not telling the truth. 
Okay, now don't <laughs> of go nuts over that. they're not telling the truth. Of course. Right. I, they'll go nuts over that. How? You don't know. Uh, which of your ancestors were hung uh, as they were being called a honky? None. None. It's not like terrible things didn't happen to people as they were called honky. And honky is such a dumb-ass insult. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't hurt anybody. And it, don't spare me your crocodile tears about honky. But I'm telling you, don't use it. It's stupid. It's counterproductive. Don't get into that name-calling because you're going to object to name-calling. So don't do it yourself, okay? So that's me telling the African-American family, I know you're angry, but don't get into that crap. Okay. Now, a slightly more egregious is the N-word where, yes, there is a loaded history of people being killed, maimed, etc., as, as that word was used against them. But that's not isolated. In this instance, the woman refers to it. So don't, you can't make the excuse, mm-hmm. oh, Jake, that's ancient history, man. You got to just let it go. We should be able to call them N-word anytime we like because it doesn't really mean anything. No, in this case, she said, my ancestors used to own your ancestors. Yeah, and... You N-word. Right. So and they said, that no, is the historical context. That's exactly what she's referring to. Also, this whole thing about go back to Africa when these individuals were born in the United States, okay? They're just as American as you are. And then also... Treating them as if they're these wild animals when you are simultaneously yelling, you know, the N-word at them. By the way, someone bumps into you in line. Why is your first reaction to call them an N-word monkey? Right? Why is that your first reaction? First of all, look, this is a problem that you see everywhere regardless of race, right? Where someone will accidentally bump into someone else and then the person who got bumped into loses their temper. Calm down. Accidents like that happen all the time. They happen at clubs. They happen at bars. They happen in all sorts of public places. The fact that she had that reaction or allegedly had that reaction to a 15-year-old girl bumping into her is ridiculous, right? Cool your temper a little bit. We're being way overly considerate of their freaking opinions. Yeah, if a 15-year-old girl bumps into you and you immediately call her a monkey, let alone N-word monkey, yeah, you might be racist. If you say my ancestors used to own your ass, yeah, you might be racist. So this is not a close case. This is not a matter of unconscious bias. That was as conscious a bias as you could possibly have. So it's not to say they represent all people. Again, I, every time we do these stories so we don't hurt the poor sensibilities of some folks, in the right-wingers in this country, we have to say, okay, we're not insulting you. If you have the same thoughts, but well, I... You can feel insulted all you want, but I didn't say that. I'm talking about this family. I have to clarify that for you every time because then you'll cry and cry. (laughs) But he's brown and he insulted my beloved white people. No, I'm insulting those people who are clearly effing racist. And if you can't see that, if you can't see that family that said, I used to, my ancestors used to own your ass, is racist, then you are racist. Now I'm being specific. If you're defending them, you like them. You like calling people the N-word. You think they did the right thing, then yes. Then now let's be specific. Then you are a racist. Because you think, oh, that was great. Oh, when we used to own them, that was the right way to go. Well, gee, I wonder if they get upset about that. Gee, I wonder who's right and who's wrong here. This is not a hard issue. But yet, there's so many people in this country who think like, yeah, but... I guarantee no, 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 it. No, no. I the, guarantee it. You know what they'll say? 
What did they do to deserve that reaction? What did they do to deserve that reaction? That's exactly right. And then they'll say, man, they were loud. You hear them? And then they'll call them names. As if the white people in that video weren't loud. Yes. They weren't yelling. They weren't loud. They weren't out of line. By the way, the restaurant did nothing to, to break them up. They eventually called the cops. But by the time the cops showed up, Thankfully, everything had kind of simmered down and they were no longer arguing with one another. But uh, after this was posted on Facebook, one of the employees uh, responded to calls to boycott the restaurant. And he's like, boycott the restaurant. Not like black people come here anyway. Oh, my God. And by the way, he he later got fired. So I want to give the management some credit for firing the employee for posting that online. But. And gee, I wonder why black people don't come if they don't come, because maybe you have attitudes like that. The only classy person, I mean, that's not fair, but certainly a classy person in this was the young girl who did was not yelling, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell from that right. tape. She did not was not engaging in any of that. She was just taping it. And afterwards, she said, and, and this is the biggest problem. She said, look, even if I were to call the cops on these people, well, I, I might get in trouble. Yeah. So that is the... That's the problem. That's why honky is not a real thing. Because you have to have power for that insult to do damage, right? So you know you have power if you can call the cops, even if you're wrong, and have a decent chance that you're going to come out on top. You know you don't have power if, even if you are absolutely right, mm-hmm. you're worried about calling the authorities because they'll likely arrest you instead. See, that is the real problem in this country. We are breaking news this morning of an apparent side effect to last week's shootings involving police here in the United States. Facebook noticed a significant spike in flagged content, which means more users called out each other's posts as racist or violent or offensive. Employees inside the company say Facebook is having a hard time deciding who is right or what counts as hate speech. NPR's Arthi Shahani reports. The day after Diamond Reynolds live-streamed her fiancé bleeding to death, shot by police, the CEO of Facebook weighed in with a post. Mark Zuckerberg said the images were graphic and heartbreaking, a reminder of why it's so important to, quote, build a more open and connected world. What he didn't mention is the downside of being connected. Employees inside Facebook tell NPR the company is struggling internally to deal with the fallout, the posting wars of the last week. The policy team has been working around the clock to respond to users like Robert Jones. He recaps a notice he got. Because of repeated infractions, Son of Baldwin has been unpublished. If you believe this is unfair, please let us know. Jones is a black blogger in Brooklyn. The notice said his popular page, 80,000 followers, had been unpublished. He filled out the link where you can make your case to Facebook to get republished, and then he got another notice. Your account has been banned for 30 days. If you think this is unfair, let us know. And I just shook my head. Right after the Dallas shooting, in which a black gunman killed five police officers, Jones wrote a post along the lines of, Dear Black Folks, Please don't blame yourself because the shooter may be black. White people don't internalize every white shooter as their personal responsibility. He did not call for violence, and he only managed to get his page back up because some fan he doesn't know happened to have a friend inside Facebook. I have never spoken to her on the phone, but I am eternally grateful. Now let's take a look at another Facebook post, a graphic drawing of a person in a black hood slitting the throat of a white police officer. Blood is dripping from the officer's neck. Many Facebook users reported it, including TJ Dunn, who found it offensive. Definitely, yeah. If it was the other way around, 
if I was posting a picture of me cutting a black guy's throat, you don't think they would throw a fit? Dunn says he reported the image to Facebook right away and got a response in about an hour. July 6, 5.37 p.m. The verdict? The image does not violate community standards, Facebook's rules on prohibited content. Dunn was floored, not just because of the post. He says there were more than 7,000 comments, some very charged. He decided to join in. When I'm seeing death to white people and kill all the white cops and... Yeah, I commented quite a few times. NPR was not able to review his or others' comments because Facebook did end up reversing its decision and pulling the post. He has a theory about why. The next day, five cops got killed. Then it got taken down. Both men take Facebook's initial decision as a sign of political bias, the platform stacked against their cause or community. They also didn't get an explanation for why the company flip-flopped, reversed the initial decisions. Jones, the black blogger, just got a notice saying Facebook, quote, made a mistake. Monica Bickert is head of policy at Facebook. She won't discuss these cases, but offers this insight. We look at how a specific person shared a specific post or word or photo to Facebook. Meaning, if one person shared the cop killer cartoon to condemn it, that's okay. If another person shared it to advocate it, it's not. And she says her team will examine every individual share, which sounds remarkably labor-intensive. Was it somebody who was explicitly condemning violence or raising awareness? Or was it somebody who was celebrating violence? According to LinkedIn data, many of the people in Facebook who make these editorial decisions about hate speech are recently out of college and have a real spread in bachelor's degrees in business, math, managing medical records, psychology. Bickert says she regularly brings in outside experts to conduct trainings. Arthi Shahani, NPR News. And um, I don't know if anybody heard about um, Bermuda warning the men there of... uh, entering the United States and not performing, not um, participating in any um, marches or trying not to have any encounter with the police. I don't know if anybody um, saw that. In the Bahamas, you could say one current nightmare is what might happen if you're a black Bahamian and traveling in the U.S. and get pulled over by American police. That hypothetical prompted the Bahamas to issue a rare travel advisory to its citizens visiting the U.S. Jerome Sawyer is a journalist in Nassau advises Bahamians traveling to the United States, particularly to the cities that have been affected by the recent protests and the shootings, to be very aware of their surroundings, aware of the protests that are happening, and to comply should they come in contact with police or find themselves in a precarious position. And I think that's the most important thing, just to comply with the police request. And if you find yourself in the middle of something that's happening, um, do what you're instructed to do, and more importantly, just to avoid any violence that you may encounter. And is the advisory, at least in terms of being cooperative with police, is that directed at all Bahamians or men mostly? I think it is directed to all Bahamians, but it does make reference to African-American men and the African-American male experience. And I think that is most important. Um, you got to understand that Bahamians really travel a lot. We move around the world a lot. And, of course, we're a predominantly black country. And so it's very easy for a Bahamian man to be mistaken for a, an African-American or a black man in America um, and so there's a little, very little difference sometimes until someone speaks and you recognize an accent. So I think it's something that, you know, they wanted all, all men, particularly Bahamian men, to be aware of. 
What's your own experience traveling to the U.S.? And do you agree with the premise that if you're black in the United States, the police might find you suspicious, more suspicious? Uh, I went to school in North Carolina in the 90s. And so I can very much relate to the experience of an African-American man and an experience with the police who are sometimes profiling or may come from a particularly racist position. And so I understand that experience. I know what it is. I know what it is to be told a bathroom isn't working or to be looked at suspiciously or to be pulled over for no apparent reason. But coming from a particularly different cultural background, Mm. um, I think my experience as a Bahamian may have caused me to act a little differently because I don't sort of share that same cultural background as an African-American. But I can relate. I I would have been in that position before. Even now, as a journalist, sometimes when I travel places, I'm treated differently. And so I understand I can relate. And I know what millions of black Americans face every day. I I would have lived it myself and sometimes continue uh, to live that experience. Is the travel advisory being taken seriously? I mean, have you spoken with people who are contemplating trips to the U.S. and are thinking about these things? I don't think anyone would have canceled travel plans, but I think it does raise an awareness. And I think more importantly, it brings home the seriousness of the situation. Whenever there is an event around the world where Bahamians may be going, whether it's into the UK or it's into the Middle East or in the United States, it is the duty of the government to inform its citizens to be aware and to be conscious. So I think what it did was it raised a consciousness. For us, we get travel advisories and coming to the Bahamas all the time. Um, It's no secret that we are a small country, but we do have a crime problem. And a lot of times Americans are advised about coming here. And so we are many times a recipient of those U.S. travel advisories. And so when this was issued, um, a lot of Bahamians, you know, sorry for what it was. You know, we are now taking proactive steps to protect our citizens, just as America does all the time. Mm. Journalist Jerome Sawyer in Nassau, Bahamas, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. I know that you have heard on this station and on others about three incidents in the last week happening to uh, folks in the United States, all of them related to gun violence. Um... I know you've heard and maybe even seen videos this week of two black men who were gunned down by police simply from anyone, from anything anyone can tell for just being black, being treated like a threat when they were not, being treated like they were aggressive when they were not. You saw that our networks carried it. All of our networks here carry it. And it's interesting, right? Because the presumption is that if these kinds of problems exist, our media would cover them. If police do things that are completely unwarranted with their power, well, our media is going to cover it in the United States. In the United States. What about this country, folks? What happens here? Why don't you ever hear about it? Why do you probably, in some cases, think I'm making it up because no one else is reporting on it? I'm on the SIU's website right now. That's the Special Investigations Unit, and the Special Investigations Unit is called in whenever it is alleged that the police harmed, killed, or sexually assaulted a member of the public. If I look at the SIU's website here, and I just look at July and all of their news releases from every time they have filed a report, started an investigation, closed an investigation about someone who's been hurt by the police or who claims to have been hurt. And I mean, usually the claim part is, is you know, they do the investigation because somebody got hurt. 
They're not trying to determine whether there was damage done to someone or not. They're trying to ha- find out why it happened. And, uh, you know, I'll just look at the front page here. July 5th, SIU investigating incident involving Toronto police, where a 39-year-old man was struck by a conducted energy weapon and seriously injured. Did you hear about that in the news? July 5th. That happens, by the way, to be the one-year anniversary of Andrew Loku being shot and killed by the police. Wasn't much media on that last week. But there's one from the end of June, a news release, that caught my attention last week. It's a story that I had been following as much as I could about a 21-year-old man named Kwasi Skeen Peters. Kwasi Skeen Peters is dead. He was killed by the Toronto police on July 25th, 2015, about three weeks after Andrew Loku was killed. And his name was almost never mentioned in the media. So we're doing wall-to-wall coverage about black people being killed in the United States by the police in circumstances that don't seem right. Well, what about the circumstances in this case, you might ask? How did Kwasi Skeen Peters die on July 25th of last year at the hands of the Toronto police? I want to read you a piece of the SIU's news release. So the SIU, as it almost always does, cleared two subject officers of any wrongdoing in the killing of Kwasi Skeen Peters. Mr. Skeen Peters was wanted by the police on two counts of murder. There had been a nationwide warrant out for his arrest. For those of you who think that that's enough to get shot and killed by the police, you don't have to listen to the rest of this because it's just, you know, details about how the police actually act. And I know that your minds are probably already made up and you don't need to hear why the police killed Kwasi Skeen Peters. But for those who want the details, the police claim that they got information that Mr. Skeen Peters, on the night that he was killed, would be going to a Toronto nightclub. They even named the club. I'm not going to name it on the air. A Canada-wide warrant had been issued for his arrest, as I said, on two counts of first-degree murder. The police went to the club before Mr. Skeen Peters did and scoped out the place. I want to explain to you folks, but as I continue, that everything I'm reading here is from the SIU's report. It's not from me. The SIU claims that the police actually got there before Mr. Skeen Peters and saw him arrive with other people. They saw that he was in the lineup. They saw that two men who were not Mr. Skeen Peters went to the parking lot where he had parked, approached his car, and that one of the individuals, I'm quoting, removed what was suspected to be a firearm and placed it into the vehicle. You following me so far? The police watched two men put a gun into the car of a man that they suspect of a double murder. They don't stop the men. They don't arrest those men. They don't take the gun out of the car. They just watch. Around 3 p.m., Mr. Skeen Peters and another man returned to the vehicle, claims the SIU. And then shortly after that time, a car pulls behind Mr. Skeen Peters, who is parked, meaning that he can no longer back out. And it is at this time that the police say that they move in. Are you following me? The police say that they moved in on a man who they claim had a loaded gun in a car only after a civilian had parked directly behind him. And there's a firefight that's about to ensue in this story. 
So just remember that the decisions that the police are making. Remember that the police let a man who they claim is a double murderer walk into a nightclub. So when the nightclub gets shot up, you guys want to know what Drake thinks and what Drake's going to say about it. But your police let somebody walk into a nightclub who they claim had already killed two people. By the SIU, not by me. We continue, though. They claim that during a four-second firefight, after Skeen Peters fires twice at them through the windshield, they wound Mr. Skeen Peters. They're shouting, get out of the car, stop, put your hands up. He shoots twice at them, they claim, and then they fire back. Mr. Skeen Peters opens the door of the car, runs out of it, runs around in the parking lot trying to take cover behind other vehicles, trips and falls over another person who's on the ground, and a gun falls out of his hand and lands in front of one of the police officers. This presumably, we have to assume, is the gun that they watched others put in the car, which they didn't stop. I want to read you a paragraph close to the end of this report. During this four-second shootout, uh, I read that Mr. Skeen Peters ran outside after he had been wounded, apparently, and then fell to the ground. Police arrested Mr. Skeen Peters as soon as he had landed on the ground. They discovered his wound, and he was rushed to St. Michael's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 3.59 a.m. The cause of his death was a single gunshot wound that went through the right ventricle of his heart. Friends, are you listening to the story? The police claim that they knew a man was a double murderer or that they suspected it. They followed him to a nightclub. They watched him go in the nightclub. They watched two men put a gun in his car. They watched him and another man go back to the car with the gun that would eventually apparently be used to shoot at them. He shoots at them. They shoot back. He's wounded. He opens his car door and runs out, falls over someone and dies. Mr. Skeen Peters opened his car door, ran around cars that were parked to take cover and tripped over someone after the Toronto police officer had shot him through his heart. Do we need a video for you to believe? Do we need a video for you to care that this happened in a parking lot in your own city? Or are we going to keep talking about the United States? Hey, I'm Kate Wells with Michigan Radio News. Devante Sanford has been home for a little bit over a month now. One month after nearly nine years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And now Sanford says he just wants to build a normal life. But he's still got legal restrictions on his freedom. The waiter at this chain restaurant in downtown Detroit just came up to Devante Sanford and asked, I'm sorry, are you who I think you are? And this is apparently something that's happening to Devante Sanford a lot these days. Like this one lady told me today, like she looked at me as her son. I was like, wow, I never even met this lady before, you know. She was like, hey, hey, you. And I didn't even know she was talking to me and I kept walking. She was like, I'm talking to you. Just like that lady, you have probably seen Sanford's case in the news by now. It is a crazy story. It's one that a lot of people in the city are fascinated by right now. 
Sanford was arrested at age 14 after a brutal killing in his neighborhood in Detroit. He was interrogated without a parent or a lawyer. He says police coerced him into giving a false confession. There was even a hitman who came forward and told police, wait, no, you got the wrong guy. I killed those people, not Devante Sanford. But it still took nearly nine years for the prosecutor and the judge to throw out the case against Devante Sanford. Now Sanford says... He's just taking it a day at a time right now. He gets up, he goes to work, he goes to school, he tries to figure out Facebook and smartphones and all the other normal things he missed. Uh, this is normal to me. Um, opening the refrigerator door, getting a job. I'm getting there. I'm getting, I, once I'm at Cedar Point, that's when I know everything is done and that's normal. Going to Cedar Point is normal. But the thing is, Sanford actually cannot go to Cedar Point just yet, which, by the way, is an amusement park in Ohio, because Sanford still can't leave the state. See, the judge in this case, Judge Brian Sullivan, let Sanford out of prison, vacated his convictions, but still has not officially cleared the murder charges from Sanford's record. So Sanford is still on bond. And that means no travel, any violation of this bond could send him right back to jail. Sanford says he's still always on guard. He takes his ID with him every time he leaves the house. He gets nervous whenever he sees police. Because it's like, I don't want to go back to that place I just left. And I don't think I should, like, I should have to, like, feel that I'm out. You know, just, just let me go. It's like, you let me out of prison, come home. And instead of living in a prison cell, I'm living in the city now. A bigger room. A bigger room. So we have been calling the judge's office a lot the last few weeks. We've been trying to get any explanation or comment about why the judge still hasn't cleared Sanford's charges. Is this case just taking a really long time to wrap up? Is this a paperwork thing? And we keep getting the same response. No comment. We asked legal experts. They're not sure what's going on. But for Devante Sanford, it feels pretty simple. They say I'm a free man. Well, let me be that. Let me be that. Let me be free. So Sanford has a very specific plan for the moment the charges are dropped. Not the day, the moment the charges are dropped. He and his family and friends are going to load up a bunch of cars. They're going to get on the road. And they're going to drive to, I bet you can guess, Cedar Point. And when I ask him why this fixation on this amusement park in Ohio, of all the places in the entire world, you can now see. My age group, like, that's normal. Plus, all get in a car, go on a road trip, and go to the point. Yeah. That's when Devontae Sanford says he will finally feel normal. I'm Kate Wells, Michigan Radio News. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. This is The Takeaway. I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks so much for listening. A compassionate plea for sympathy after Dallas. Your work and the work of police officers across the country is like no other. And here's a superficial grab at a soundbite after Dallas. It's a war on cops, and the Obama administration is the Neville Chamberlain of this war. 
That's William Johnson, executive director of the National Association of Police Organizations. He was one of many voices last week fanning flames of anger after the murder of those five police officers in Dallas. President Obama, in his speech yesterday to honor the fallen officers of the Dallas PD, tried to quiet those voices of anger and more widely to acknowledge both the special role and challenges faced by police departments all over America today. For the moment you put on that uniform, you have answered a call that at any moment, even in the briefest interaction, may put your life in harm's way. The idea of a war on cops may be convenient for cable TV graphics, but there's no evidence of such a war if you look at the numbers. The number of police officers who have been intentionally killed on the job has fallen from 101 per year during the Reagan years to 90 annually under George H.W. Bush, 81 under Clinton, 72 per year under George W. Bush, and down to 62 annually under President Obama, a figure that doesn't change even when accounting for the Dallas ambush. Chuck Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, says the disconnect means we can at least acknowledge that we're doing better than we often think we are regarding police violence and violence against police. In the uh, 70s, uh, 60s and the 70s, you did have a lot of police officers that uh, were killed more so than today uh, and ambushed, uh, deliberately killed. Uh, you had Black Panther movement and the fight back and forth between the police from New York to Oakland. So you did have police that were, were killed and assassinated in in the 1970s. You might have, uh, you know, 10, 20 police officers in New York City who uh, were killed. So, you know, it was a difficult time then, much like it is now. But overall, the numbers have come down. But I don't know if uh, we can attribute that to anything more than the fact that you do have officers wearing body armor and you do have officers are being told to wear seatbelts. Those two things we did. We got labor and management together to agree on the mandatory wearing of seatbelts and body armor. So, you know, it's sometimes difficult to compare because those two factors can really cut down on um, officers dying. Do officers coming into the departments and coming into the police academy uh, have a sense that there is a war on cops taking place in America, that they've heard that rhetoric? I don't believe there's a war on, on cops at all. Uh, I, you know, I think the good news, quite frankly, is, you know, most communities, there's a good relationship with the cops. You know, most I think the whole country, when they saw what happened in Dallas, was just stunned. Uh, they, it was just stunned. And so I don't think the rhetoric, yeah, the politicians and so forth, they're going to use this sad occasion for their own purposes. But at the end of the day, the good news is um, that overall crime is down compared to 20 years ago. When the people look at a situation like Dallas and they look at the Dallas Police Department and all the progress they make, and then they see – These five officers who are walking with demonstrators to protect their First Amendment rights, joking around with the demonstrators, taking pictures, tweeting with each other, and then they get murdered. I think the public, really, the general public basically is sympathetic. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of room to change and to to find more strategies to de-escalate some of these situations that don't involve firearms. I think that there's an opportunity. You know, the president's message yesterday in Dallas was was really 
I thought, pretty powerful. And uh, we really need to find ways to continue to build upon what we've already done. But uh, there was a lot to learn from last week. Uh, the way they got the shooter, sending in a robot mm -hmm. with a C-4 bomb. C-4 mm -hmm. is a weapon of war. Mm -hmm. And in the media, they were just like, wow, this is cool. We got a new toy. Look at this, a robot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, is this the new normal? Is this what we should be doing? Anytime there's a problem, we just send in a robot with a giant bomb? When Dallas Police Chief David Brown announced last week that Micah Johnson was killed by a robot with a bomb, it raised a lot of questions that we've been trying to answer. What kind of robot was it? Has it been used this way before? And is this use ethical? Well, new information today is filling in some of the blanks. Lauren Silverman of member station KERA has more. After hours of negotiating with Micah Johnson while he was holed up in the parking garage of El Centro Community College, Dallas Police Chief David Brown said enough. I knew that at least two had been killed, and we knew through negotiation this was a suspect because he was asking us how many did he get, and he was telling us how many more he wanted to kill. Brown asked his team to come up with an idea, so they attached a pound of C4 explosive to their bomb disposal robot and detonated it within a few feet of where Johnson was hiding. This wasn't an ethical dilemma for me. I'd do it again to save our officers' lives. The heavy-duty, mostly metal robot is about the size of a lawnmower with hefty treaded wheels, cameras, and a large extendable arm. It's made by Northrop Grumman's subsidiary, Remotech. To understand this robot, it helps to know some basics. Howard Chiswick, an engineer at the University of Washington, says there are three types of robots. First, the industrial ones you might see on an assembly line, maybe putting together a car. They basically are tools that do exactly what they're told to do. Then there are autonomous robots. These are the ones that tend to get the most attention, at least in Hollywood. Think Robocop or Terminator. Finally, Chizik says there are telerobots. That's what the Dallas police used. Things like bomb defusing robots or drones, search and rescue robots, where there's a human in the loop. These are all over the place. Think of drones flying over Pakistan or robots that do microsurgery. Tim Dees is a former police officer and tech writer for PoliceOne.com. He says telerobots are a common tool among large law enforcement agencies, like the Swiss Army knife of robots. I've seen them with shotguns, with water cannons, with uh, arms that articulate enough to open a package. So they're used for all sorts of things. Dee says bomb disposal units do routinely carry explosives with them. Unlike on TV where uh, you have some sweaty guy trying to decide whether to cut the red wire or the green wire, the more common way is to what the bomb guys will call render it safe. It usually means blowing it up right where it is. Arming a robot with an explosive to blow up a person, as was the case in Dallas, that was a first. Still, according to Michael Horowitz, that doesn't make the device a killer robot exactly. A killer robot would be something that was more autonomous, that was actually programmed and could do things on its own without human supervision. Horowitz is a political science professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He says some people wonder whether this type of remote technology might make police more likely to use lethal force since they're not directly in danger. Another question has to do with security. Engineer Howard Chizik says there's a risk that the robot could be hacked. If somebody disrupts that information stream, right, they could potentially take over and command by remote robot or just make it not work. Chizik says hacking probably isn't something we need to worry about unless police start using remotely controlled robots more often. 
For NPR News, I'm Lauren Silverman in Dallas. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. A funeral came yesterday in St. Paul, Minnesota for Philando Castile. He's the 32-year-old cafeteria supervisor who was shot and killed by a police officer during a traffic stop in a St. Paul suburb. Records show Castile had been pulled over by police 50 times almost. So the question comes up, was he targeted by police or just a careless or unlucky driver? NPR's Cheryl Corley and Ader Peralta dug through public records and talked with family and experts. Philando Castile's trouble with traffic stops began when he still had his learner's permit. He was stopped a day before his 19th birthday. From there, he descends into a seemingly endless cycle of traffic stops, fines, court appearances, late fees, revocations, and reinstatements in various jurisdictions. Let's go to the winter of 2003. With his license already suspended, he is stopped on January 8th for speeding. On February 3rd, it's unclear why he's stopped. The same thing happens on February 12th. And on February 13th. And again on March 4th and March 22nd. What Mr. Castile symbolizes for a lot of us working in public defense is that, you know, driving offenses are typically just crimes of poverty. And Mr. Castile's story is one that repeats itself countless times throughout the court system. That's Eric Sandvik, a public defender in Ramsey County. When Castile was killed, his name sounded familiar, so Sandvik looked through records and saw that he was listed as his public defender and saw the same patterns he sees every day. In one six-year period, starting in 2006, for example, Castile is stopped 29 times. Sometimes he's fined $270, sometimes $150, but it keeps adding up. He soon amasses more than $5,000 in fines. Sandvik says someone like Castile might have had to choose whether to pay auto insurance or an outstanding fine. Larpenter Street is a dividing line separating St. Paul from surrounding suburbs. Falcon Heights, where Castile was pulled over by the St. Anthony police, is one of them. Maplewood, about 10 miles away, is another. Maplewood Police Chief Paul Schnell can't comment about the Castile police stop, but he has seen the list of nearly 50 citations Castile received when driving through nearby communities. It seems like a lot. So then it does you know, prompt what, you know, what was the basis and, and why so many stops. Chief Schnell says all of the communities along Larpenter have policing priorities. He says many consider traffic enforcement good policing. Communities where they may not have high demand for um, services, officers are going to be looking to take action, to do things, to produce, because that's, that's one of the things that I think that's being more and more expected. Philando Castile's driving problems often appear to be triggered by something small, a problem with his license plate or blocking an intersection. When he couldn't keep up with the fines, his license would get suspended and he'd keep driving. But all of those tickets he received angered Castile's family, particularly his sister, Alizé. She thinks it was her brother's dreadlocks and the big sedans he loved to drive, like the Oldsmobile he was in, made him stand out. I'm just baffled. And I've been pulled over in the same vehicle that my brother died in. I've been pulled over in that car probably three or four times in uptown for the same exact reason, supposedly a broken taillight. When you run the plates, Philando, his his name comes up. So I've been harassed driving his vehicle myself. So I know that they harassed my brother. Of course, we don't know intent or if police knew something about Castile that's not in the public record. University of Minnesota law professor Myron Orfield says this doesn't really surprise him. 
Back in 2003, he studied racial bias in policing. The maps show that African Americans crossing into mostly white suburbs or through the borderlands, as locals call it, were up to seven times more likely to be stopped by police. When you see those really stark residential differences between neighboring communities, it's often uh, a sign that something there's some underlying uh, discrimination going on. According to data from the St. Anthony Police Department, officers issue citations at the same rate as neighboring suburbs, but disproportionately arrest African Americans. About 7% of the residents in the area patrolled are African Americans, but this year they make up about half of the arrest. Some leaders compare this to Ferguson, Missouri, which the Department of Justice castigated for being more concerned about revenue than public safety. In a statement, the St. Anthony city manager says the data unfortunately shows that St. Anthony and Falcon Heights face many of the same challenges that Minneapolis, St. Paul, and other cities do. He says St. Anthony and other suburbs are continuing to review how officers are trained and engaged in activities addressing racism and bias issues. But he doesn't say how, and he does not specifically address the issue of traffic fines. But traffic fines were a constant in Castile's life. From 2012 to late 2014, like clockwork, he pays off fine after fine, sometimes more than $500 a month. Beverly Castile is Philando's aunt. He was trying to make it right, and it was right. He paid off all his tickets, got his license back, and everything else. So it was done right. Last week, police stopped Philando Castile once again. Castile's girlfriend, who was in the car, says it was because of a busted taillight. But in scanner traffic audio obtained this week by Minnesota Public Radio, a seemingly nonchalant officer, Yanez, tells dispatchers a different story. The two occupants just looked like the people that were involved in a robbery. The driver looks more like one of our suspects just because of the wide set nose. Gloria Hatchett, an attorney for the Castile family, says that's racial profiling. You know how you say there's a, you know, a robbery suspect with a broad-nosed African-American. That is equivalent to saying there's a white woman with blonde hair. What happened next is unclear. Was Castile just reaching for his ID or was he reaching for his gun? What we know is that Yanez fired his weapon. What we know is that throughout his life, Castile was stopped by police at least 46 times. If there was anyone familiar with the routine and perils of a traffic stop, it was Philando Castile. What we know is that the July 6th stop was his last. I'm Cheryl Corley. I'm Ada Peralta, NPR News. While the nation was both protesting the deaths of two men at the hands of police in Louisiana and Minnesota, respectively, and mourning the murders of multiple police officers in Dallas on Sunday, three WNBA teams were doing the same with on-court gestures. In New York, members of the Liberty wore shirts that said hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Dallas Five. In Minnesota, Lynx members had shirts reading, quote, change starts with us, justice and accountability. On the back of that, it said Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Black Lives Matter, and had an image of a Dallas police force shield above it. In Los Angeles is where things got weird. At the Staples Center that night for a Sparks game, the phrase All Lives Matter appeared on the Jumbotron. If you don't get why that particular terminology is harmful, then you might want to revisit the dictionary. When someone says Black Lives Matter, they mean two, not only. It's pretty basic. The whole point is that black lives are not mutually exclusive to other lives. Anyway, when it comes to taking public stances, two out of three ain't bad for the WNBA. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take.
We stand here tonight accepting our role in uniting communities to be the change we need to see. We stand before you as fathers, sons, husbands, brothers, uncles, and in my case, as an African-American man and the nephew of a police officer who is one of the hundreds of thousands of great officers serving this country. But Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, Laquan McDonald, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile. This is also our reality. Generations ago, legends like Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, and Tommy Smith, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown, Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe, and countless others. They set a model for what athletes should stand for. So we choose to follow in their footsteps. The racial profiling has to stop. The shoot-to-kill mentality has to stop. Not seeing the value of black and brown bodies has to stop. But also the retaliation has to stop. The endless gun violence in places like Chicago, Dallas, not to mention Orlando, it has to stop. Enough. Enough is enough. Now, as athletes, it's on us to challenge each other to do even more than what we already do in our own communities. And the conversation cannot, it cannot stop as our schedules get busy again. It won't always be convenient. It won't. It won't always be comfortable. But it is necessary. Wow, that was very uh, powerful stuff. What, what was your reaction when you, when you uh, saw and listened and heard this? I was definitely surprised, uh, but at the same time impressed. Mm -hmm. And um, the the thing that that resonated most with me that I that I that that I took most from from the statement was that they mm -hmm. called out their fellow athletes mm -hmm. to play an active role in fighting for and promoting change. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just uh, a statement about what was going wrong and what they felt was wrong with society. They actually challenged their fellow athletes directly mm -hmm. to take a stand and to to fight for and promote change. And we were talking about whose idea was this. I mean, they, it's interesting because, you know, obviously Carmelo, Carmelo came out with the very first statement about a week or so ago. Right. When he basically, said, you know, challenged athletes that we can't, we got to stop hiding. We just can't use our contracts. I mean, we're making enough money, and uh, let's let money empower us, not weaken us. Right. And he, the, he said, I think Carmelo said, you know, we're here to be celebrated, but and what leads me to think that it was their idea, and he said, we wanted to start the show this way. Right. Which makes me believe that probably he was talking a little bit. The guys were talking and said, listen, we just can't go on the show when we're honoring Muhammad Ali, whose whole legacy right. was that he stood up against right. people as I talk about my jump shot. Right, right. You know? And then we talked about this a, a couple times recently that this is the way to pay tribute to Muhammad Ali, to be Muhammad Ali, to to take a stand, to not be afraid. Right. You, I mean, we all see what's going on out here. They're not blind. Right. And what they did here is they actually showed and they told the world. We, we were talking about this earlier in the show mm -hmm. about how 
many fans don't view these guys as black. Right. You know, they view them as just superstars or drones or got, you know, in a uniform, but they don't view them as black men. And what they did right here was tell you, we are black men. We're black men just like those, you know, all the names they mentioned that had been killed by police. Right. So that was very powerful. Yeah, it was. And um, again, I'm sure that people can nitpick all kinds of stuff. But the fact that... um, you know that that I I really do think that it was their idea, right? That, that they said, you know, we we've got to let people know that we're we're concerned about this. And I think what I like this to do is sort of spread like a ripple in a pond. In other words, what what they were doing is saying we're going to take responsibility in in our particular industry, right? Right. That's all we can do, right? Well, if you are working at Goldman Sachs, you know, and making like you know ten million dollars a year, whatever you're making. I think you got to step back and say, are you a $10 million, you know, are you a $10 million Negro and, and you're not going to identify with, with the community or are you going to step forward too? Right. Uh, same thing with, with the reporters and, and everybody, wherever you are, I think that you have to say, okay, nobody's got the answer. I mean, they didn't come up and say, well, this is what we're going to do, but they just, we have to announce to the world and to everybody watching this that our eyes are open. We're watching this. We're concerned we all have sons and daughters, and this has got to stop. And I thought it was very interesting when they when they talked about the um, shoot to kill right. has got to stop. The racial profile has got to stop. Not seeing the value of black and brown men has got to stop. Black and brown people has got to stop. I mean, the guy in New Orleans, I mean, Baton Rouge, shot shot this guy in front of his wife. I mean, it, it, you know, it's it, it kids, you know. Right. And I, I, and, and, and I think you mentioned this before. It's going to be very interesting with these people who normally don't really look at black athletes as men. Now, are they going to start saying, we don't like Carmelo anymore? We don't like LeBron James. Now that we see them as black men, right? you know, how are you, are you going to still support me? You know, how do you, you know? Right. Well, good. You know, right. it's, at least you know, it's better to, to know the evil that's in front of you rather than to, you know, have to wonder and guess. I mean, and, and these athletes know already. Right. They know. They know how it is. I mean, these, the guys who are who are committing to Kentucky and Alabama mm-hmm. to play football or basketball when they don't commit to to some school, all of a sudden, all those fans that liked you before are sending you racist tweets and all that right. kind of stuff. So they know what's out there. They know what we discussed earlier about not being really true fans of of them as people. They right. they understand that, you know. So I, I think. I I think it's the only thing they could do to to be able to live with themselves. And this is four superstars in the NBA. I definitely think that they came up with it on their own. They're four four friends. First of all, these guys yeah, are right. are well known friends. They hang together. So obviously there was a conversation had. Like you said, Carmelo had already basically written the blueprint to this whole <laughs> this whole thing. So I kind of feel like he spearheaded it. He was the he was the person who right. spoke first. LeBron spoke last, which makes sense because he's the biggest star of them all. Um, but at the same time, remember, it's, it, you know, I look at it, it is, it, it's a great thing, but it's just a statement. But I thought it was a powerful statement and a, and a much needed statement and a heartfelt statement. But we'll yeah. see where it goes from and, here. And next, and next is deeds. I mean, you know, Max Roach had an album called Deeds, Not Words. Right. And I think the words are great. And, and as Carmelo also said in his, uh, in his statement a, a week ago, that Okay, we've already, like you said, we've, we've talked before, we've done the marches, the demo, we've done all that stuff. We're looking for for something new. Right. And I think that 
Although he didn't say it then, I think the new thing, is, again, is unity. Right. You know, because the interesting thing, and we're just coming off of an of a NBA performance, in all sports we all re- we realize that a team that is the best team usually wins. When everybody accepts their roles, they play their roles, and they play together. And I think that's what – uh, you know, that's what I think Carmelo's message was. Certainly when we, you know, earlier this week when we, you know, had the celebration of $40 million slaves, that was sort of the whole thing is that we've got to find a new common denominator. What what binds us, what links us right. as a people. And I, I've always thought that the athletes, even on, even on the plantation, the plantation athletes always had the most currency. Because the the uh, people you know the, the black folks in the field they liked them because you know they 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 were the embodiment of strong black bodies right and the people in the house liked them because they'd be bitten on them to win the foot races and, <laughs> right, right. and be the strongest boxers and know it all that so they had the athletes even on the plantation always had the currency they had the respect of their peers and also the grudging respect of the people in the big house. And I think that even today, when you look at where a lot of athletes come from, I mean, mo- many athletes, particularly black athletes, they're not coming from affluent households. Right. They become affluent. Right. But I think that many of them can certainly identify on those days when they grew up in the hood, when they saw the police storm through their communities and look at them like they were kind of uh, interlopers and that they were policing them. And they, they said, they all, I bet you every single one of those guys, you know, LeBron growing up in Akron, you know, uh, Dwayne, I think he was um, Chicago, Chicago, um, uh, Carmelo growing up in Baltimore, Baltimore Chris Brooklyn, Paul, Chris Winston Paul. Salem. Yeah. And I sure every single one of those brothers know what it's like to live in a black community and see the police and how they how they can treat us. Right. And, and Chris Paul mentioned that his I think his father was a policeman. Right. Or, you know, so not his father, not his one of his or, uncle, you know, his or uncle or something, right. you know, uncle was a policeman or family member was a policeman. So, and this is the case for a lot of people. A lot of people have uh, policemen as family members, but we all still understand that as a whole, it's, there's a problem with, with the entire system. And are you, and I I mean, so are you, are you, are you a black man or are you a policeman? Right. Are you an investment baker? Are you a black man? Right. Or are you a basketball player? Are you a black man? Or a black man. What what, what are you first? Right. And I think that, you know, there used to be the conception of the white people always pat you on your back. I just, I'm a journalist and I just happen to be black. I don't want to strangle motherfuckers who say that. You know what I mean? But then the white people are, oh, yes, yes. Right. That's, that's, that's the way, that's that a boy, you know. No, 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 man. And so I I think that um, this symbolically because this country is so sports mad now but what i what has to not happen jamal i think is this you know once particularly the liberal thing they get on this they could kind of overtake the movement now everybody this is a feel-good moment you watch every they get they got a standing ovation and this is great next thing you know your your your, uh, movement has been uh hijacked by the well-meaning liberals and all, and that, that, that it, it, it cannot happen. When Pharaoh defines your promised land, you're probably not going to reach it. But that's always a temptation. White people have a very hard time of remaining on the sidelines, you know, and and letting black folks lead this movement, you know, because they always have to because they they they're very powerful, so they they you know Disney even by accident. Yeah, yeah, they just can't, you know, and it's always a temptation to kind of. You know, right. now each of them probably have, you know, the white agents and, yeah, that was calling to be now Sports Illustrated on the cover. And before you know it, 
this raw, powerful message becomes co-opted in a way that takes white folks off the hook. And you have to understand what did Walter Beach say the other day, or I say I quoted Walter Beach nearly fully. If you don't understand white supremacy and racism and what it works and how it and what it is, everything you do understand will confuse you. Right. Including this moment. Right. Like this is right, it's raw, but now suddenly it becomes co opted. And now all of a sudden they're white agents are yeah, we gotta put you on the so and so show and this show and, 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 and all that and I and I guess um that may but you have to stay strong and you cannot allow this thing to be you have to continue to um to push and fight and struggle because like somebody said in this speech it's not going to be convenient context of white supremacy not always going to be convenient amen gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday july 16th 2016 so i have been told Compensatory call-in. Folks have the opportunity, victims of racism, to dial in if you have observations, commentary, things that you saw over the past seven days that you would like to share, comment on, counter-racist suggestions. Feel free. Dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate a couple quick things before we get to uh the callers number one we will be here tomorrow 3 p.m eastern 2 p.m central 12 p.m pacific global sunday talk on racism Certainly lots going on around the world. Uh, We are right on the cusp of the Olympics uh, down in Brazil. Uh, uh, David Cameron, racist suspect, uh, just stepped down as prime minister. Over in England, uh, Theresa May, a white woman, also racist suspect, uh, took his place. That happened this week. That was a part of the Brexit fallout. Uh, which I think we've been talking about in connection with racism, white supremacy, and too many non-white people uh, coming into England. Um, certainly everything that's been happening uh, in this part of the world, in the United States, and, and that has been global news over the last uh, seven days, a uh, month or so, uh, really. Uh, the U.S. presidential election, I mean, it's lots uh, going down around the world. The attack uh, that happened in France uh, at the end of the week, uh, will be great to hear uh, our international listeners' perspective uh, on everything that has been going down. But that will be tomorrow, early time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Tune in. Looking forward to hearing from folks. Uh, and then we'll be here on Monday. Uh, Norm Stamper, 
uh, suspected racist, uh, former race soldier, uh, 30 years as an enforcement official, former chief of the Seattle Police Department. He will be back on the program. Uh, he's been everywhere the past 10 days. He was on uh, News One. He was on Democracy Now. Uh, he was on NPR. He has been all over the place uh, talking about uh, police and racism, white supremacy. Uh, it will be grand to have him back. I didn't even know that he had been in all of these spots. The reason that I even thought to ask him to come back on the program was I was reading the Seattle Times on, I think, like Monday. It was either Sunday or Monday. It was like right, it was almost a week ago. I was reading the Seattle Times and they were talking about the events uh, in Dallas and the police shootings and everything. And they referenced Maurice Clemens. Uh, and again, because I've still seen even what happened, I've still seen people saying that black people are cowards. And this is other black people. Black people are cowards and lame because we don't stand up to white people. We just let them do whatever they want and push us around. That's why all this stuff keeps happening. Uh, and I've said for years that that is totally false and that you are poorly informed. You you know should lose your speaking privileges immediately if that's the type of stance that you are taking. But in the Seattle Times, they were referencing uh, Maurice Clemens. That was a black male in 2009 right here in Washington, right outside of Seattle. He shot and killed uh, four white enforcement officials. Uh, this was huge news. I remember this was like front page everywhere and CNN was talking about this and uh, I think he was uh, on the run for I think three or four days before they uh, shot and killed him but this was huge news uh, back at the end of 2009 and they were connecting these two events and so they were asking people about that and they interviewed uh, Norm Stamper to get his you know thoughts on everything that went down and I was like hmm we should uh, we should see about being able to get him back on the program so it looks like that should be going down Monday normal broadcast time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific that's it uh, quick comments before we get to folks who called in uh, that was Bill Roden, uh, the author of $40 Million Slaves. Uh, I've played some of his segments before. In fact, uh, if you remember, I played uh, the segment where he and Walter Beach were talking about the passing of Muhammad Ali. I played that segment uh, last month. And Walter Beach quoted Neely Fuller Jr. Bill Roden made reference to it. Uh, in the segment that I played this week and quoted Neely Fuller Jr. again. Always fantastic uh, to hear people mention his name. Hopefully that'll get uh, more non-white people will uh, come to try to check out Mr. Fuller's work and get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. I think Bill Roden this week was the 40, uh, 10 year, excuse me, was the 10 year anniversary of his book, 40 Million Dollar Slave, which has a lot of great information about racism white supremacy and is sadly still relevant uh but i thought that was uh grand i almost because that was a, a a lengthier segment when they were talking about what happened with uh lebron james and everybody at the espies uh and i almost cut that and uh i forgot that they had referenced neely fuller jr so when i was listening to it again to make the uh audio segment i was like oh yeah i gotta how could i uh, how could i cut that out so it was great to hear that um one other thing that i wanted to make sure I get or I guess two other things that I wanted to uh, make sure that I get in related just to that if you don't understand racism white supremacy what it is how it works uh, I felt the colossal loss of Dr. Welsing immensely over the past uh, 10 days or so as all these events have evolved this is certainly 
uh, the time that I would have reached out to Dr. Welsing to see if we could get her on the program. I felt like she was always such a calming influence, uh, certainly with her years of experience and training as a psychiatrist, uh, being able to talk to black people. I always felt that she just could do a really good job of just uh, being calming, soothing, saying what needs to be said and offering completely accurate analysis about racism, white supremacy. And I really uh, missed having her input uh, on all of this. But she did come on this program 31 times. And I went back and I was going through the archives and I remembered talking to her about the Christopher Dorner situation uh, in 2013. And I listened to it. And this was Christ- at the time, Christopher Dorna was still uh, on the loose, as they say, and they were looking for him. This was, you know, the, the biggest topic uh, in the country at that time. And I was talking to her and what she recommended, which would be completely appropriate, apply uh, applicable right now. She said black people do not need to be super emotional in our uh, analysis and how we process all of this. Uh, and she said exactly what Bill Roden said, what Walter Beach said, and quoting Neely Bullard Jr., if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, everything else will only confuse you. And she said, I can understand black people being frustrated about racism and feeling like there are not enough black people who are standing up to confront racism and wanting to see a black person who's seeming like they are courageous and willing to go out and do something and particularly willing to go out and and confront you know racist enforcement officials and do something about that but let's be calm let's make an analysis as opposed to just being very emotional and how we process this and particularly let's look at how racists are going to use manipulate this event for their agenda let's make sure that we're paying close attention to that this is what she was saying about uh, the Christopher Dorner situation but I for sure think it would be equally applicable to what has happened uh, with the shooting in Dallas and uh, what's happening with uh, suspected shooter Micah Xavier Johnson it's grand uh, should even be something that we can make time for to revisit some of her commentary on Christopher Dorner because man it, it sounds like she was uh Speaking two days ago or so, last thing that I'll get in before we get to some of the folks who uh, dialed in, um, just in terms of being patient with other victims of racism, um, one of the things that I do, really one of the few things that I do to try to take a break from uh, racism and just the stress of all that, I will play spades. Uh, That's been something I've enjoyed for many years, even before uh, I was concerned about racism, white supremacy, Uh, and If I'm going to play, I don't want to talk about racism. Like, this is supposed to be my little break. So, you know, if people want to talk about, you know, other things, that's fine. If people don't want to talk at all, that's fine, too. But I don't bring up, I don't bring up racism. So we're playing cards. Somehow racism comes up. Now, this has happened before where we'll be playing and somehow racism will uh, come up. Generally, it is not me. I'm not the one that's talking about it. But that has happened on a few occasions. So racism comes up. And, oh, man, it was it was amazing because it was like I think everybody at the table wanted to talk, wanted to participate in the conversation. However, 
as soon as it came up, all of the cliches started to come. And it was like every other sentence, every person that spoke, it was just cliche after cliche after cliche. Uh, white people are ignorant. They're so stupid. Everybody that, you know, believes in some sort of racism, they're just as, as stupid and as foolish as can be. Oh, man, we just need to wait until all these old white people die out and then this problem will be solved. And I'm sitting here on one hand like, hey, just play the cards. We're not only talking about this is my escape. We're not even supposed to be talking about this. And then on the other hand, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, it, it, what do you mean uh, ignorant before I, it was before I could even get a response out or ask a question to one piece of like empty rhetoric and false information it would be followed up by another piece like before i could even say well wait a minute what, what do you mean ignorant it was yeah we just need to wait for the old white people to die and it was well wait a minute dylan roof was 21 yeah he was the most ignorant stupid white person ever and it's like oh my gosh like just just get back to the cards like let's not even play but i was able to stay calm patient uh, and I was able to ask a few questions. I made a few statements about the uh, ignorant thing, just explaining my viewpoint. I think I was able to just in a sentence uh, to just say that I would not describe someone as ignorant if they're doing what they want to do and you have not shown the ability to stop them. They're not ignorant. And nobody challenged that. I got the Dylan Roof was 21. I was trying to get in some other examples of younger white people uh, doing the exact same thing as their relatives and grandpapas and grandmothers and everything. But, you know, it, it had already taken off at that point. But I was able to get in a few things and then I was able to reference an article. I mentioned Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, and at least I think one person at the table was familiar with Dr. Welsing. And then uh, I mentioned an article. Uh, that I had written about white people not being ignorant. Some of the people there actually read the article and then came back and commented and was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to have to uh, rethink that. And uh, they had no uh, anger, no rage about it. They agreed and said, I'm going to have to rethink that and, and make sure that I'm not saying that in the future, that white people are ignorant, because that did make a lot of sense. I was like, great. That was awesome. I uh, just have a little bit of patience, not getting angry. And then quickly, uh, as soon as there was a gap, I think I was the one saying, let's just get back to playing the cards. We're not supposed to be talking about racism. Just just play the cards. Just play the cards. More cards. Let's talk. And that ended all of that. Uh, but just again, be patient with other black people. Be patient. Uh, try not to uh, fuss at them or what have you, even if they are saying things that, you know, are inaccurate or what have you or are not logical. That is very common. That is how we have been trained, victimized to think, speak about racism, white supremacy. And uh, I think it does take a lot of patience and compassion to begin to correct that process. I will pause there. Uh, if you would like to participate again, the number six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six. If you would like to participate, if you could watch the background noise, that would be super appreciated. If you know you're in a noisy environment, use your mute button. Uh, we certainly you can say share whatever thoughts that you have, but just use your mute button so we're not picking up all the extra noise and what have you. It just really disrupts the quality uh, of the program. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, that would be great. Make sure everybody has ample time uh, to share. Again, 
no metaphors, please. Uh, really appreciate that. If we can just be direct, explicit in terms of discussing, saying whatever uh, we want to say, articulate about racism or counter-racism, uh, just be direct about it and not have a lot of metaphors and analogies. A lot of times the things that are being compared are not equivalent. Uh, really appreciate that. And the only broadcast that I make that request is the compensatory call-in. Uh, people use metaphors and analogies on many of our other broadcasts, and I have nothing to say. This is the only one. We are supposed to be watching the way that we talk about racism, white supremacy, being mindful of our speech. So that is one request that I make. Thank you kindly. Uh, folks that dialed in who have a hand up, uh, line should be open, or at least the first uh, few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. I'm just going to move down uh, the list and get people in the order that they dialed in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening. Good evening. Thomas in New York. How are you guys? Um, just had a few observations. Um, thus, um, Spades is a universal black game. Um, just had a question. Um, do you guys uh, play with more than two jokers there in Washington, or do you guys just stick to the big and low joker? Uh, I do not. Well, the game that I was playing this week, we were actually not playing with jokers, but I have played with uh, both of the jokers, the big one and the little one. Uh, you guys don't play with the third joker? We didn't play so with any jokers at all. We didn't play oh, okay, jokers, okay. So. Got you. Um, two observations. Um, uh, the Yale student, um, personally, I loved his response. I think the young brother, um, just snapped, um, looking at that mural of two slaves just grinning, happy to be in a cotton field, picking the cotton, just the way the white people love to run the narrative. Um, you know, this is my problem with white history in this story, too, um, because they claim Yale it's the third largest, I mean, the third oldest college in the United States. But Yale is actually 70 years older than the United States. So I think that's a false statement. You know, it's older than the United States. Um, however, this black guy um, initially be charged with a felony for breaking this um, glass that he compared to the size of the tablet. Um, compare that to the damage caused by white students when their school wins a national championship, you know, they display things like cars, they break people's home windows and mailboxes, they break traffic lights, street signs, and um, I've never heard of them being charged with felonies for doing that. Um, you know, I was listening to that clip that you played with the lady. Um, you know, we should never um, call white people names like um, Cracker or Honky a devil, or especially, like, out of anger. And um, you should never get into racial arguments, you know, with white people. Personally, I think if they're doing that, just let them sit there quietly and let them do be the only people arguing. Let them be the only people talking. Um, and that, that, you know, I think is the best way to handle that. Um, you know, especially to tell you go back to Africa or, you know, you should expect that type of stuff from them. And um, I think um, all the yelling and screaming and arguing, it's an argument that you can't win. Um, you know, white people could throw out slavery. They could throw out the black holes, Jim Crow, crack, drill, 
education system. I mean, they're going to win on every point. You know, I mean, really, what you're going to say? It's just, um, I, I, I think that the most codified response is to let them be the people acting a fool. Um, cause as soon as you act a fool, too, or you go back in, it looks like you're, you're, you're just two people. I would let, it, let them be the only people um, doing all of that. Um, that brother from Stanford, um, his name was Stanford, my bad. Um, that was a sad story, you know. He just wants to go to an amusement park to make up for lost time with his family. He probably was looking at pamphlets of that park in jail. You know, I forgot how long he was in there, but it was for a while. And, um, you know, he's probably been thinking, you know, that the first thing I'm going to do when I'm free is, you know, I'm going to get on the roller coaster. And here he is free. Uh, he, he's been said that he didn't commit these crimes, but he's still a prisoner in his own city, which is terrible. Um. A long time ago on the show, I mentioned about the, um, the future of policing was going to be these robots, especially those coming from DARPA, uh, coming from Boston Dynamics, which is a Google company. Um, that's the future. You know, and when you look at uh, the Terminator, and they had, um, I think it was the one with the female Terminator, and um, they were at the beginning stages of building it, building the system. And you saw the T1, the very first Terminator. Uh, it looks exactly like the machine used to kill Micah X. Um, I forget his last name. But um, to, to, you know, yes, thank you, Gus. Um, you know, it, it looks exactly like that. Um, with the two tracks on the side, at least the version I saw, instead of having one arm, that held this bomb that this thing has um, two, two Gatling guns mounted on the top of it. So it just looks like they just retrofitted it with another attachment. But, um, you know, we're in the beginning stages of surprise looking at, just looking at the movie, The Purge, I'm surprised they didn't use drones um, to... to get better footage, you know, to show us more images, you know, or if any of this ever happened, really. I mean, they could have blew up nothing and just telling us the story. There's white people. Um, but either way, um, with the facial recognition technology, they could tell if someone's lying um, or telling the truth um, using the impulses to someone that they usually make for the facial gestures they usually make when they're not telling the truth, the camera picks it up automatically, feeds it into the database of the computer, and somehow, but if the cop has one with it, you know, and they ask you, hey, what's your name? You got to tell them the truth where you live. You got to tell them the truth. I mean, it's going to be a totally different society that they're coming with. And um, instantly, you know, to look through your Using your facial recognition technology, look through your social media profile, probably instantly make an algorithm or a profile on you that they can use for themselves to see if you're going to be hostile or not hostile. I mean, it, it's going to be endless possibilities. Um, last thing I wanted to say, <clears throat> I mentioned um, that my daughter went away to camp. And um, she came home today camp in Cornell University, uh, a very white institution. 
Um, and um, I asked her, hey, you know, what, what type of things, you know, racist things happen? And she said, oh, well, let me tell you. Um, the first group of white kids that were there with them, when they, she got in the pool, she said when the black kids got in the pool, they all went to one side and um, rolled the eyes at them, would not interact with them, and half of them got out. And um, so just to let you know, that that practice is still taking place. And I'm in my line thinking. Fascinating. <laughs> Hello? Yes, sir. I did just want to say the white kids at uh, Penn State, Happy Valley, they uh, rioted and tore up the campus and flipped over cars uh, in frustration when Joe Pa was going to be fired uh, for aiding and abetting a child rapist. And I don't remember them doling out a whole lot of felony charges uh, and, you know, destruction of property charges. Then this was like thousands of white kids. They got this on camera and everything. I don't remember that either. So they act a fool, not just when they win a championship for any reason or no reason at all. Sometimes because they're mad about child rapists and their friends. Uh, M1, was that you? Oh, yes. Hey, uh, it's been... Well, I hope everybody is okay. Uh, more, uh, several things. Uh, the, the report on the C4 that was strapped to a robot to kill Michael Johnson. Now, this sort of, now it's interesting. This was listed as a uh, first time a test case and if you study these kinds of things if you remember the creation of the SWAT team this was their first case fighting against the Seminese Liberation Army and how did that end that ended with them being firebombed. We saw a move. Again, they didn't fire any weapons. All the weapons were fired towards them, but they were bombed along with a whole block of black people. So sending in bombs to get Michael Johnson isn't surprising. Uh, also, is, uh, has anyone heard that someone we discussed several times, uh, Trevor Dooley, his manslaughter conviction was overturned? I, I guess not. Uh, yeah, I, I found out about this like two weeks ago. Now, I don't know if he has been released from behind bars. Supposedly, as I said, the manslaughter conviction was overturned. He's supposed to be getting a new trial. Now, the guy he shot, his lying ex-wife and lying daughter, they, of course, are trying to stop it. And, you know, why I say they're liars, I mean, I've read YouTube comments where this woman, Tanina James, has stated that her husband did not 
put his hands on Trevor Dooley. And why the daughters turn out to be a liar is she's talking about how a bad guy he is. He took away my daddy. But yet, we all remember when she was in court, she stated that her, that her dad grabbed Trevor Dooley as he was walking away from the argument. The argument ceased. He was walking away. She said her dad grabbed him, was aggressive towards him. And why that is important, remember, David James was a military man, retired Air Force lieutenant. So he should know when someone puts their hands up in the air, conflict is ended. But it didn't matter to him. So... Yeah, I just found that fascinating. And going back to what the person who attacked President Obama on was basically been my favorite subject for like the past 19 months, the whole war on cops and And you know, Gus and everybody else, we have discussed on this program just the non just the non-anger the downplaying and just the tolerance of white cop killers or the lack of outrage when a cop is killed as long as it's a white cop killer that is only for black people only black people engaged in war on cops. If you remember during January, February, when white people were the only ones killing cops, their focus, all the pro-police people, was Beyonce. Not the four cops that were killed the week of the Super Bowl by white cop killers, not the six that were killed before them, but Beyonce. And now, why do I mention war cops again? This racist tagline wasn't more evident than what happened on Monday. The Michigan courthouse shooting. When the story first came out, Oh, you, this was immediately tied in with the Dallas police shootings. This was another sad day in law enforcement. We got to, you know, something has to be done. Can't have our law enforcement officers being killed. The moment, and I kid you not, the moment we saw that this law enforcement killer, Larry Darnell Gordon, was a white man who had a 22-year criminal history, by the way, and he was in prison for kidnapping, drugging, and raping a 17-year-old girl. The minute we found out that 
he, this white man, killed these law enforcement officers, wounded a deputy who was black, wounded a civilian who was black. The minute we found out, all of a sudden, the story started dropping. I watched the O'Reilly factor that day, something I haven't done for a while. No mention of it. That was the conservative side. I watched the Rachel Maddow show, something else I don't do. Get the liberal side. No mention of it. It was just reduced to a crawl on the TV screen. No Giuliani talking about we need to respect law enforcement. No war cops. No, we can't go after law enforcement like this. None of that. Just a moment you found out was a white guy. And that was what I saw. And as I always ask, if anyone followed the Michigan courthouse shooting and you saw a different take, please let me know. That's all I have to say. For sure. I think a few other folks did make a similar observation that that got hushed down really quick once it was, oh, this was a white shooter, not some uh, random Negro. Larry Darnell Gordon uh, was the white rapist's name who carried all this out uh, in Michigan uh, this this past Monday. Uh, Other folks that uh, we have not heard from, line should be open. Other folks that we haven't heard from. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hello? Oh, yes, sir. Oh, we can Speaking to you, Gus, and um, to all the other callers and the listeners. Oh, okay, okay. Hold on, sir. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask the the black male who went to prison at 14, um, I don't remember his name because I was kind of in and out uh, dealing with some other stuff, but... Did, did they say that the judge either did not remove him from probation or did he not remove the charge even though he was exonerated? Uh, I think it was they didn't uh, remove the stipulations from his probation. Uh, it's Devante Stanford, uh, I believe yes, is how Mr. you Stanford. say his name. But I think it's, yeah, he 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 did not do this, uh, but they did not, it seems, unless I'm remembering it inaccurately that they did not remove the stipulations uh, from his probation when they released him. Okay. Yeah. When I heard, heard that, um, that uh, story, it just was really moving simply because um, the fact that the judge essentially is trying to keep him tethered to the system. And psychologically he's being terrorized because he can't even leave his own house. It's like being in prison, but, being in a citywide prison rather than just a four by six cell. So it just, it's, it's just really interesting how white supremacy played out in the um, legal system for him in the way in which this judge won't just do his job and um, 
remove these stipulations from his probation just so he can try and get some semblance of normalcy after being falsely accused in the first place. But then again, he is uh, a black male, and this is a system of white supremacy. So, um, I mean, this sorts of uh, tacky, trashy, trifling behavior should be expected. But, you know, sadly, this this, this brother should really um, have some access to a sense of peace in some manner, even though none of us really uh, experience true peace in the system, but some semblance of peace after going through something as heinous as that. Um, I found the clip that was towards the end where um, I think you said the, the black male's name who quoted uh, Nearly Fuller Jr. Um, when he was referencing the uh, basketball players, I believe it was the, the five who uh, spoke out about racism and wanting to do something about it. And um, it's just interesting when he talked about them co-opting like a really poignant comment, counter-racist comment. And I find that to be um, a rhetorical ethic norm with them, where if something is said that has some sort of impact, they'll co-opt it and then eventually commodify it. And then, like like he said, white people just take over everything. And that just goes back to our experiences with them from the very beginning. Like, we, we've never been allowed to have anything for ourselves without them dictating it um, once we come into contact with them. Um, so to me, it was just interesting, that particular aspect of the clip. And it also, I believe they do that to downplay black suffering um, um, and make it seem like things aren't as bad as what they really are. These are all tactics that they use like all the time in order to try and um, minimize the, 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 the pain and suffering of black people. And um, also I wanted to make an addendum to um, the comments I had on workplace racism with jury duty. I wanted to um, just give another tidbit about the grand jury. Um, I did mention that they do choose 23 jurors and how they come to a decision to indict is 12 out of the 23, a minimum of 12 have to agree. So if, if there's anything less than that, that 12, then essentially they won't, they won't be able to move forward with the case. So I just wanted to put that out there. And then um, also, uh, oh, also on my job, weirdly enough, um, the same black male I talked about too, um, the workplace racism that I said is a very um, eloquent speaker who is um, trying to make some, uh, changes in the company, I guess you can say counter racist changes in the company. Um, he had a discussion this past Friday where he kind of lamb blasted this. It was like a whole discussion where they call it, um, they call it, uh, what's the name of the, I forget, but there's like this whole thing where the whole company comes and they get to listen to different people speak. And he was, he spoke at this, this event on Friday and he basically lamb blasted the response of the company to, the recent killings of black males and just the general experience of black people um, and how, you know, he basically spoke to the fact that many black people across the country have been dealing with um, a lot of psychological issues due to these overt killings of black males that have most recently come out. And the minute that that meeting was over, there was a blanket email sent out and they're going to have psychiatrists come to the company next week. Um, I think it's on the 20th and the 21st so that people who have been dealing with any sort of um, mental anxiety or stress due to recent events, whether it's those things or any of the other events that have come out, whether it's, you know, the different terrorist attacks in France and all this other stuff, that they'll be able to, you know, have a sit down and speak to someone. So I just found that interesting. Um, and we'll see how that, that plays out. But I wanted to mention that. 
then uh, another thing that I thought about was there was recently a documentary I saw. It was called Inside the Mind of Giants. It was a, a nature program. I love uh, quite a bit of nature programs since I was a child. And especially they were following elephants. And what they found was that elephants essentially have a response to white supremacy, white supremacy in the form of poaching. And um, specifically, they had a giant male. He was known as the biggest and oldest male on the African continent. His name was Sateo. And what they found was that whenever he encountered people, because he had very long tusks, he had lived so long that he understood that his tusks were basically him having tusks put him in danger. So whenever he encountered people, he would immediately turn his back to them to hide his tusks. And he would um, place his face as close to the ground as possible within the tall grass so that the people around him would not be able to see his tusks at all. And they actually had film footage of him. Um, eventually, he ended up getting killed, and they chopped his face off and took his, um, his tusks. And they also found that another thing that they do is that they, there's areas between different parts in Africa where they're protected. And between those parts, they have like these no, man, no man's land type of areas where poaching t- tends to take place quite often. So what they found is the elephants will wait until nightfall. They go into literally silence, which is something that they normally don't do. They communicate when they travel. But it's, like, it's basically like they're fully aware of the fact that they're leaving a protected space into an unprotected space, and that's the precaution they take. And overnight, they travel from one safe zone to the other, and they found this pattern as they started studying them. And I just find that if animals that have a high intelligence, like elephants, have some sort of response, and it's actually weird enough to speak of epigenetics, they've even had a genetic response to being killed, where the response is some of them are no longer born with tusks at all. So there might eventually be elephants without tusks ever simply because of all of the killing and the genetic response to them being killed for their tusks. So I was thinking if these higher life forms are coming up with these codified responses to being killed like they are, and they said that elephants are killed, one elephant is killed every 15 minutes. So if they're coming up with these responses and these responses are making headway in their survival as far as them traveling at night, and being silent when they do so and understanding the lay of the land as far as where it's safe and where it's not safe. And, and black people have been dealing with this situation for 500 years and we've tried everything except, you know, a united independent codification process and uh, a, a true shift in our cultural uh, teachings that we pass on to children because really all culture is, is the, um, passing on life-saving information to future generations we have a lot of work to do as far as trying to get as many people to understand the way the system works as possible. And weirdly enough, lastly, I just wanted to say I saw a film today um, called Black Mass, and it's the story of uh, James Whitey Bulger. And I think it is one of the greatest, my wife sat here and watched it with me, I think it's one of the greatest films to watch to see how white people function. Um, Essentially, he had developed a relationship with an FBI agent, and via that FBI agent, he was able to help them uh, bring down the mafia, which was his greatest competition in Boston. But at the same time, he was committing murders while being protected by the FBI. And um, the way my wife sat here and watched part of it with me, she was shocked by by the way white people talk to the police. She was um, like, wow, I don't believe that they threaten the cops like that. I said, well, they're, they're white. This is a system of white supremacy. If that was a black male, he would have been shot. And she also um, was shocked with how brazen they were with the killings that they were, they were committing, and they would just walk away from the scene, not run. They would be very calm and 
methodical in their um, killing and then leaving the scene of the crime. And I said, well, they're white. This is the type of stuff they do. And um, it was just watching it in a codified way. And I think if anyone gets to see it, there's so many different um, angles to how white supremacy functions that become abundantly evident throughout the film. And I even thought the title of it being called Black Mass and, of course, associating um, this arch criminal with the color black made total sense from a racist white supremacist perspective. And um, I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. For sure. If folks could remember the five minutes, five minutes, uh, roughly, uh, share whatever views. No apologies. No apologies needed. Because we should have time for if if folks have extra comments they want to get in. We should have time today for folks to make extra comments if need be. Uh, Other folks uh, that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Good evening, Gus. Good evening to uh, everybody who is listening. This is V from Central New York. I'm very happy to be with you guys. Um, This is kind of therapeutic for me. So the last couple of weeks, I've made it a point to not be doing anything so I could listen and um, hopefully participate. Um, So much was said tonight that, you know, I'm, I'm... going to uh, be uh, deliberately brief, hopefully. Uh, A couple of news points locally in my community, actually. Um, It was reported in our local paper earlier this week that Ku Klux Klan flyers were found on several cars. Um, The number was not given, and of course, I... As soon as um, this was brought to my attention by somebody else, I immediately asked the question, okay, so somebody actually reported it. How many people did not report it? Um, If you recall a couple of weeks ago, actually, I made the the statement that um, I was continuously told that the Klan was run out of the community, which I stay in. So, um, and Thomas from New York actually made a mention that, you know, he took from it that, the Klan was still around, which I openly admitted I knew, but um, I didn't expect to get confirmation this quickly. So there you go. Um, last week, I suggested that everybody uh, pick up a Black's Law Dictionary, and I was kind of intrigued as you were going through the clips. Um, there was a mention of um, Mr. Castile looking like a suspect. So I opened up my Black's Law Dictionary and looked that word up, and what is quite amazing is it reads, to have a slight or even vague idea concerning, not necessarily involving knowledge or belief or likelihood, suspect, with a reference to probable cause as grounds for arrest without warrant. Um, It then goes on, but so I looked further into it, and... I would definitely encourage anybody, if you get the dictionary, also look look up that word, but look up um, suspicious character, which is also very telling. Um, so definitely some uh, work there. Also, a book called Uncle Tom's, well, not Uncle Tom's Cabin, but The Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, a lesser kind of addition to that, where... Uh, the writer of Uncle Tom's Cabin was laying out her evidence. People obviously were were posing many questions about whether the story she was utilizing and telling 
in that book uh, was real or more real. And so she put together this book to say, yes, here are my references. Here are my facts. On page 23, there is a section on policing in the black community, particularly arresting black subjects or capturing slaves for money. So um, I found that also interesting. And on July 12th of this year, the New York Times posted on their front page, they published on their front page, I should say, a beautiful picture of some people at a at the Baton Rouge Police Department holding up their fists. Of course, Black Lives Matter protesting against the death of, of the brother down there. Right below it, prosecutors at odds as Gardner case drags on. Right next to that, and still below the um, picture, may I say, analysts find, or excuse me, analysis finds. No racial bias in lethal force. The article is quite intriguing. Um, a guy, uh, an economist from Yale, I believe it was Yale, studied a thousand shootings in the South between police and just suspects and found that with shootings, uh, there was not a racial bias. So, um, you know, take it for what you want. I also would recommend, finally, my last comment, the Cointel Papers. If you've never read it, great read by Ward Churchill and Jim Vander Wall. Page 306, The Advent of Terrorism. Uh, this was... And I quote, this was accomplished in the immediate aftermath of COINTELPRO's alleged demise, as is shown in the accompanying April 12, 1972, airtel from director L. Patrick Gray to the SAC Albany. The word selected was terrorist, applied here to members of the Black Panther Party or the Black Liberation Army, who had only months earlier still been designated as agitators and key extremists. I'll leave it there. But um, definitely check it out. Uh, thank you very much, Gus. Um, mute my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greeting, greetings, everyone. Uh, speaking of books, I... Uh, received uh, a couple of days ago uh, the uh, revised expanded edition of the Capitatory counter racist code book and uh, 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 starting to read it and uh, I'll report on it later um, robots nothing new uh i can say from a uh uh from a historical level i can recall reading about joseph kennedy junior who was actually killed in the process of of uh going on a mission attempting to go on a mission uh and uh he was killed because of the drone that he was flying and reportedly he's pulled the bail out and it goes the rest of the way by remote control. Uh, 
which is essentially what a robot is anyway, uh, robot drone, same thing. And uh, in the process, uh, he died in the aircraft before he can bail out of it. Uh, Joseph Kennedy Jr. is the uh, son of Joe Kennedy Sr., who ended up uh, producing two other children, uh, John and Bobby, who were murdered. Uh, I have a experience with a quote-unquote robot, very similar to the one that uh, was said to have killed uh, the uh, Dallas, quote-unquote, Dallas shooter. Uh, and this was in about, I, I wasn't on the fire department very long, so it was something like the mid-'80s. Uh, I may have been on for about four or five years. Uh, it was in the mid-'80s. And uh, we were called and on the, on this call of a black male who who was, uh, they said the night before, uh, uh, was shooting out of a window. <laughs> Not necessarily, they, 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 they didn't specify if he was shooting at someone, but shooting out the window. No, no one was harmed, was hit due to him shooting. But nevertheless, they called, uh, uh, of course, the police. And by the time we got there, they first attempted, they meaning the police first attempted to use uh, the fire truck to spray water as a diversion to be able to go up and kill this uh, black male. In turn, they changed their minds and used and attempted to use their robot. As I mentioned, it looked exactly like the one that they say killed, that killed the uh, Dallas uh, uh, shooter except for uh, on the end of its arm, it had a 12-gauge shotgun. Uh, the uh, operator used, uh, used a television set. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it, didn't do, it didn't do a good job of climbing the stairs that it had to go to get to uh, this individual. And in turn, uh, they use as a last result his mother to talk him into coming out. And thankfully, he it, he uh, he did come out uh, from where he uh, was was uh, uh, pent into, or they would they would have uh, they would have killed him. Uh, the the robot itself that I, the, the the photos that I've seen and what they had on the end of his arm. Uh, was a uh, uh, actually was a, a mine that caught that that is called a Claiborne mine and it has in it pellets that have a range of killing more than just one person. I assume he was he was in this uh, area by himself at the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was just my experience on as far as the it's nothing it's nothing new. Uh, last but not least. I've been listening to a lot of reports about uh, solutions to uh, the problems of of uh, of uh, uh, law enforcement killing black males, and they're they're saying that uh, you know things like uh, different type of strategy have to be uh, placed in. Uh, they're saying that uh, uh, 
the individuals that are being hired. Uh, they come from the military, and in the military, they are brainwashing to a particular type of uh, uh, mentality uh, uh, when they have a gun in their hands. Uh, but it, everything is being said except for uh, that the, the act of killing non-white black people is the result of the global system of racial white supremacy. Therefore, if that is not neutralized, this will keep going on and on and on until that is neutralized. And uh, and, I, and I say that to say that I expect white people to avoid that uh, that particular uh, understanding, but it also is coming from a lot of non-white black people. Uh, I, I heard you last but not least, I heard you mention about uh, your your conversation, uh, the conversation that I guess came up while you were playing cards. Uh, I had a, I had I've had similar experiences uh, where, quote unquote, friends. In this case, it was uh, uh, members of the, the, the staff, the football staff that I uh, work at, you know, all, you know, the whole staff is black males. And. Uh, most of them know me and know that uh, of my uh, my uh, uh, place into my understanding, what they think of my understanding of racist white supremacy, and uh, I've had I've have expressed it around some individuals sometime, and uh, it, it, as you mentioned, they kind of like rush rush towards the uh the subject matter so fast that that you don't have the opportunity to answer everybody uh so you it is true you have to be patient with non-white black people because a lot of the things that i have to say it they probably heard it in that particular way for the first time but i do have the opportunity and they do give me the opportunity uh because of the patience that i show to uh make a uh make statements or, or or through questions actually and uh from there they get a better understanding uh, uh from me and also i think they also get a better understanding of the global system of racism white supremacy based on what what uh some of the uh comments that i get back from them and that's all i have thank you Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, greetings, everyone. This is uh, Puff. A couple of quick comments. Uh, listening to the uh, the uh, uh, what are those? The clips that come on before this broadcast, and uh, I never know. See, I've never seen Amy Goodman's show at all, and so. Uh, if this is a testament to the to the nothingness of Amy Good, she is nothing for those comments that she made uh with the other co hosts before the uh before the um the show came on. Uh I also like to say um it's also a testament to the uh the person that recorded that it's also a testament to you know the behavior of white people. I think this happened. This also happened at a at a uh, 
at a at a I think it was a Starbucks a few weeks ago. Somebody, you know, was harassed and, and was complaining about uh, different, I mean, it was harassed. And, and you know, it, it's also a testament to the, the, the nothingness of management of these places. Where they mm-hmm. see you, where they mm-hmm. see you being harassed or whatever, and the least management can do is ask the person that's doing harassing to leave. And why didn't, well, we know why this didn't happen. But, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it just refused to do the right thing and then turn it around on the victim and blame and blame the, the black people. And um, I also wanted to comment on uh, the Yale situation. Um, about the stained glass window and um, and the person lost his job. I mean, they highlighted that, you know, even though the people, some of the news people wanted him to get his job back and he wanted his job back. He He's without a job for, you know, having to look at. But he said, and it tells about the Yale environment, you know, uh, he got to look at slavery, pictures of slavery in a stained glass window. And, uh, you know, that made me think of, you know, if that's in a church somewhere or something, these people think they're going to be white in heaven, I guess. So I don't know. Uh, the white white people think they're going to be white in heaven, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But, uh, and that that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead. What exactly did uh, Amy Goodman say that uh, you felt was was uh, incorrect or, you know, revealed something about Amy Goodman? Well, it was it was racist the way she was saying um, her and I, I think that's the co-host, the, the man that was talking also, that was the co-host also. Or, I don't know, but whatever she, she says that uh, she was saying how... Um, they don't need to be treated like that, like she's a black ally or something. And then she, you know, they don't they don't want to be treated like that, and you shouldn't treat them this way. And this and it's just a refined, uh, it's just a refined stance on on racism when you know that that lady, the lady that the white lady that was going off on on the black child. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was 15, she said, you know, she was calling, and that's how all white people feel. That kind of rage and all of that is, is that's what white people feel. That's what all white people feel. You know, when they, when they see you, you know, they, they have the, I wish you could hear, when I lived in Tennessee, I wish you could hear the way that, see, they listen to all that rhetoric all the time. But, see, they don't know black people. And so they listen to all that talk radio rhetoric and Republican and all that stuff just be on all the time. And they just program with that stuff. And it just reinforces all that programming. And, you know, they 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 concerned about, you know, white powers on the wane and all this old type of stuff. So when they see you, they just... They just act like a pit bull or something, you know. It just 
I know you said no with the metaphors, but I, I'm sorry about that. All right, on. <laughs> Just uh, for clarification, the segment with the female and male host where they were talking about the incident in Texas where the tacky white couple, they went in with like, you know, our ancestors owned you and you nigger monkeys. That was not Amy Goodman. That was the Young Turks uh, with Sank. The, I think some people are questionable about whether he's accepted as white or not. But that was uh, the male and female host on the Young Turks. Amy Goodman, uh, she also has a male co-host with her. Uh, that segment was the one where they were talking about the incident at Yale with the stained glass window. That was the one where Amy Goodman uh, was on. But the- oh, okay. Well, that well, that tells about the uh, well. Amy Goodman still nothing, but you know the, we know Sink and the Young Turks are uh, nothing. Also, they're nothing. They're they're worthless. They are they're both worthless. And uh go ahead to somebody else. That's not funny. I mean, you know, it's 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 messed up. I wish you could I wish everybody on this line could hear him. I'm gonna listen to that this week too. And see you can on the internet you don't have to live there to get uh FM stations. You can just listen to it on the internet. WTN in Nashville, that's the talk radio station in Nashville. You can listen to that any time of day and just listen to the local people when they call in. It's just, it's, 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 you'll learn a lot about white supremacy. At, at least I do. I learn a lot about white people listening to that. Mm. For sure. For sure. The, uh, the segment with the Young Turks, I thought it was interesting because they started that clip talking about the incident where they're at this restaurant or what have you. They started with chastising the black people about using the word honky uh, or cracker or whatever else uh, in talking about folks classified as white. I thought that was fascinating for that segment for what happened, what was recorded, that that's how you start uh, with chastising and fault finding with the black people, victims of white supremacy for that segment. Uh, But for sure, we have noticed some patterns about the Young Turks over the years. I try to get in a segment or two uh, from them each week uh, to just kind of notice similarities and how they present information. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from, other folks who dialed in that we haven't Uh, heard from. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Ken Steele from Chicago, and uh, I wanted to make mention of something I'm noticing a lot of in the um, last couple of weeks are posts by um, and long essays by uh, suspected white supremacists uh, claiming that uh, they have information for black people that will help them out or something, but um, really it all just amounts to bragging about some of the perks that they're getting from uh, practicing white supremacy. For example, there's one post uh, where uh, this uh, suspected racist um, uh, explains how he was able to be stopped by a police officer and he has a AK-47 in the back of his car and uh, how that police officer uh, allowed him to uh, observe that he had a, an AK-47, observed that he had spare clips, and then uh, con- allowed him to uh, continue uh, driving home with no problems. And then in the comment section, you'll see a large number of uh, 
victims of white supremacy, uh, just issuing tons of thanks and praise. And um, another one of these posts that went viral are, uh, is one where there's a whole uh, family of suspected racists, and they're wearing shirts that say Black Lives Matter. And that's basically, I think it's the two adults in the, in the family they are wearing shirts that say Black Lives Matter, and somehow, or for some reason, uh, this is supposed to help eliminate racism. And um, sure enough, in the comment section, you have a whole bunch of people um, uh, who are victims of racism saying, um, you know, thanks, praise, um, you, you've done so much. It's um, very, very um, puzzling. And the most recent one that I've seen uh, is there's an article of, uh, I, I don't even have to say suspected racist. It's uh, from the Huffington Post, and he says, I am a racist. And he basically is bragging the whole article about being a racist. Um, he starts out his article um, by, you know, saying, you know, I have, you know, uh, a green-eyed wife, and I have blue-eyed, uh, blonde kids, and, you know, um, I am a racist. And then he goes on to explain that, you know, he's a racist out of ignorance and he doesn't know the suffering of black people. And, you know, all of this is just based on ignorance and with a little bit more education, this can be stopped. And, and, um, and it's okay that he admits that he's a racist because that's the first step of change. It's just a very puzzling article. The only way that I can understand it is just to understand that this is an admitted racist and he is practicing racism right now in this article. And sure enough, um, very confused victims of white supremacy are sharing this article and it is gaining steam. And um, yeah, that's just something that I'm noticing a lot in the last few weeks uh, following um, a lot of the, the action that we've seen um, play out uh, here in the States. So. Yeah, that's just something that I've been noticing. Um, suspected racists are just looking for props. Oh, and another thing is, I suspect a number of these posts are deliberately made to attract sexual partners uh, who are victims of white supremacy. Because when I do look at these posts, like the one with the AK-47, I mean, the dude is like kind of... Uh, posted a kind of like a uh, what appears to be a Photoshop selfie. I mean, so uh, he, it, you know, it's like, and he, you know, it's kind of, you know, set in a way that I'm, I'm sure attracts a number of victims of white supremacy because you look in the comment section and they're saying things like, you know, gorgeous and this, that, and the other. And then other people in the comment section even posted other pictures that this guy was posting and he has a bunch of just glamour selfies with him and guns it's um it's very very disturbing and it's something that i'm seeing more and more of oh and um if i have uh a little bit more time i'll just say that another thing that i'm noticing that uh suspected racists are doing um is that they are basically admitting um to the existence of racism or whatever, and then they will use that as a way to bait you into a conversation to start uh, 
claiming that, you know, black people are actually the real practitioners of racism and that black lives do not matter, et cetera, et cetera. So these are just, um, you know, word games and word tricks that uh, these people are playing. I try to tell victims of white supremacy, do not share these videos, do not share these posts, do not give them more steam. Um, and do not thank them either, but uh, these suggestions, as you'd expect, are kind of falling on deaf ears. Mm. Just try to keep doing the best you can. Um, other folks that we have not heard from, if we have not heard from you and you had commentary, you should go ahead and speak now. Hey, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to point out real quickly with those articles and stuff, um, it could work like the YouTube basis where they work on based on clicks. Uh, YouTube makes $18 million a day just on ad revenue. And um, you remember how, like, I think a few years ago you were doing things on compensation, like how much you were asking, like, white supremacists, like, how much were they paid and, and the racist people that write these articles and stuff. How much were they paid to do that and, and this type of thing? And this goes to compensation also with, um, you know, baited, just like he said, baited little little things, and it goes with compensation. So, you know, which which uh, titles will get the most clicks, and, and that means ad revenue, and that means more compensation. It could mean more compensation. I just wanted to point that out. For sure. For sure. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody who we have not heard from at all have commentary they wanted to make sure they got in? Hope you people... heard. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Thank you, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. I had a few observations of, uh, throughout the week. Um, well, first, uh, from the audio segment, um, like I noticed how uh, on the Young Turks segment, how they did start um, pretty much criticizing the black people for how they responded to uh, racism. And I guess that was a, a white person that posted on social media about, you know, black people, you know, they don't, they don't come to eat at our uh, restaurant anyways. And, and uh, I thought about how, you know, we really like to be patrons and uh, supporters of these businesses and they are uh, in control of making our food and things that we put into our body. So, you know, I thought about that once again and uh, how, a situation like that can just come about within a matter of seconds. And, you know, once again, that pattern, uh, you know, pattern recognition of no response from the uh, surrounding white people. And, you know, that like that can't be ignorance. That's uh, willful uh, participation in the act, you know, so it's like they're agreeing with them in silence. So, you know, they were able to just, because I've seen the video, and they were able to just uh, go on about their business and, you know, they made sure they got, you know, the, the victims all upset and got their receipt and left. 
So I guess they got their money back. So I guess that was uh, some sort of uh, black self-respect. Um, but as far as the, the, the uh, I guess some people might call them slurs or whatever, and they don't, they don't have that same uh, sting because, <laughs> you know, they were saying, you know, N-word, but yet, you know, they're not saying the C-word or the H-word. So just that, just in that alone shows the difference. And uh, and I'm thinking, like, uh, with the the police uh, making, like, I don't know who made up the term uh, Blue Lives Matter, especially with that trend of how a lot of uh, white people will say, you know, we're colorblind, but, you know, they're using the term blue lives matter, but, you know, it doesn't make any sense because everything they got on them seem to be the color black. So, you know, I don't know where the blue thing comes from. I guess it's a traditional thing, but the gun and the so-called nightstick and the, the shoes, everything, you know, is uh, the color black from, uh, from what I'm understanding. And uh, I had a I had an experience uh, earlier today. I was taking my car to get uh, checked on the maintenance, and about four or five uh, sheriffs walk into the room. And you know it's a it's a lobby for people, and we're just watching the screen with the movie on. And you know <laughs> the the, uh, the the main white person or the uh, race soldier suspect. He was looking down at this paper. I guess he was about to serve someone some papers. You know, he looks up at me and he looks down at the sheet. And he asked me, you know, hey, you know, is your name Roderick? I was like, no, sir, it's not. Man. He, didn't ask, he didn't ask anybody else anything. He just asked me, you know, the darkest person in the room. So he, uh, him and his uh, crew, they go and walk somewhere else and then, they wanted to go talk to an employee, then they walked back outside. So I had no idea was you know what that was all about. So just goes to show you, you know, wherever you go, um, got to definitely be aware constantly. So can't, can't take any breaks, and uh, uh, that's that's all I have. Amen. Another example of why you want to be sober. Uh, in my opinion, because you never know when you're going to have to uh, answer uh, a suspected racist's questions or come in contact with some racist. Uh, and in my view, it would be best to be sober so you can make great decisions uh, in those circumstances. Um, oh, and uh, just the Devante Stanford, that's the young black male uh, up in Michigan. Uh, where he was incarcerated unjustly for nine years and from the age uh, of 14 uh, and they exonerated him uh, and what have you. Uh, and he was talking about in the sound clip, uh, he was talking about how he uh, is not able to travel and what have you. Uh, so the exact particulars uh, they cleared. Uh, he was uh, his convictions were vacated, but they have not officially cleared the murder charges from his record. So that's why he has all these uh, stipulations and what have you, because that murder charge, the murder charges are technically still on his record, uh, which is absurd to have to continue to be uh, dealing with this and hampered by this when he's been exonerated. He didn't do it. It's clear that he didn't do it. And just more than a decade of abuse. And it just continues even once in a reminder of Mr. Fuller why he says it is greater confinement uh, that the entire 
world is a prison system of racism, white supremacy. You just can be placed in greater confinement. That is for sure the situation that he is dealing with, Mr. Uh, Sanford. Uh, folks that we have not heard from, anybody, if we uh, missed you, you had commentary you wanted to get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, thank you, Jess, and um, for everything that you're doing. I'm a first-time caller, and um, just uh, had a couple of observations. Um, uh, one was... Uh, I, yeah, especially like to thank thank you for uh, that uh, me medical apartheid thing. Um, it um, kind of opened my eyes about certain things. Like I was listening to a radio show and they were talking about something called the Urban Death Project. It's basically they were saying that uh, you know in the cities uh, cemeteries take up too much space and yada yada yada. It takes too much. Uh, real resources and energy to cremate people. So, what they what they're experimenting with doing is uh, they're building these structures to uh, uh, basically your loved ones go in the top of the thing, and uh, out the bottom comes com compost. So I'm guessing you can do whatever you want with it. I'm guessing uh, grow vegetables or whatever, the de delectable Negro or uh, anything. But um, the thing that uh, the thing that um, really kind of um, caught my attention is they kept saying urban death project and uh, and from uh, med medical apartheid, I, I heard that the um, that the uh, colleges, the uh, the um, ex experimental co colleges are in black areas and black neighborhoods and um like some kind of southern university in north carolina is doing the research and everything so i figured you know that's something in it in it interesting to check out and um another thing i was listening to was um a guy called joe mizungo something he he wrote a book about the you know, he was trying to figure out where he got his name name from a white guy, and uh, come to find out, you know, he did uh, he he did the research and it was a uh, oh you uh, you must have heard about that uh, yeah he uh, descended from an African warrior or whatever that um, I guess uh, won his freedom before uh, slavery uh, I mean before you know the the, the laws were. Um, set so that he couldn't marry a white a woman or whatever, and that the uh, miscegenation or whatever they they want to call it, and and of course uh, when he told his family about it, of course he had a bunch of uh, KKK members and everything. Of course they weren't too thrilled about it, and uh, I, I just thought that was a very funny story, and uh, you know that's all I got to say. Uh, thank you. Mm, he mailed me a copy of his book. He's supposed to be a guest on the program and. Uh, then uh, decided he did not want to speak with us, that we were just crazy and all of that. That He had other things to do with his time and energy, but I did get a free copy of his uh, book, Mr. Uh, Mazingo. I think I even included a sound clip from years ago. I think that was that came out uh, like three years ago, maybe even longer than that. Uh, other folks, I posted an article about the uh, Urban Death Project uh, on the Facebook page uh, where they've been talking about this, uh, turning corpses into compost. 
Mm. Uh, always good to hear from first-time callers as well. Uh, anybody that has not been able to share at all, anybody uh, that we have not heard from, uh, you should go ahead and get your commentary in now because we are closing in on the end of the program. Anybody we have not heard from? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, is it too loud? I have a, I have a heavy-duty fan on, and I don't know if this, the noise is too loud in the background. Uh, it's fine. Okay, um... I need, I need to um, ask you something and, and uh, share something that um, that you were saying last week. I think it was last week you were saying that black people, you said you wasn't, uh, and you and a lot of the other callers were saying that they wasn't going to watch any more violent videos because um, whites, you know, become immune to them and think that's standard procedure to kill black people and um and I I I thought about what I think it was either Dr. Cambon, Mr. Fuller or Dr. Francis Cress Walton said black people need to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I understand I want to watch those violent videos all the time. But I think it's something that we should watch when it happens to keep to keep us on the alert because I think sometimes inertia can set in and we can become complacent because I mean I mean with this I mean that's just natural you know because I mean, no nobody wants to keep getting beaten down you know I mean that that really takes its toll on your psyche and um, so I I just I just wonder how you felt about that. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's certainly uh, VGQ. Um, I think yours truly, actually, <laughs> is the one who started saying uh, we need to get comfortable uh, being uncomfortable. But that oh, is that's not okay. the point. Um, yeah, I, I, I would only submit uh, with the video watching. Um, I, I certainly take your point in terms of us making sure that we are not being complacent uh, and that we remain alert and and honest with ourselves and each other about, you know, the, the environment that we are in that is super dangerous uh, for any and all black people, males, females, children, uh, regardless of where you happen to be at in the world, uh, that that's true and that we need to be truthful uh, and reflect that in our behavior at all times, uh, because it could be us that winds up in the next video or there is no video and you just end up being beaten, killed, whatever the case, uh, whatever happens uh, with enforcement officers or just a regular old white citizen, because that happens a lot, too. Uh, so I certainly uh, take the point there. Uh, I can just speaking for myself. Um, I don't need to watch those videos to stay alert. Uh, I think I stay pretty focused on the fact that we are in a system of racism, white supremacy and, and the ramifications of that for my life. I don't think I need to watch uh, the latest snuff flick of a black person being exterminated to keep that in the forefront of my mind and how I deal with enforcement officials or whites in general, how I conduct myself on a plantation. Uh, I think I stay pretty grounded in that uh, on a on a daily basis. I'm sure I could do better, but uh, I just take the position that I don't see for myself. I don't see where I'm going to learn something new. I don't see what the benefit would be for me continuing to watch all of these videos. I've seen a lot of them. 
uh, which transpired. I do even if I don't watch the videos, I do tend to uh, read, so I am uh, informed uh, about the incidents. I try to include information on the program as well, but I just don't see what the benefit is uh, for me to continue to watch these videos. I've seen I've seen a lot of them over the last five years, and I'm just at the point that I don't see what's going to be what will be gained from watching new ones. Uh, and I'm I'm sure other folks they can come to their own conclusions and people who take the position that they have learned things and it's constructive for them to continue viewing it great but that's just you know my own personal stance and certainly there's bgq victims guarantee qualification uh as it relates to that or anything else uh in terms of counter-racism hopefully that makes sense yeah it does make a lot of sense thank you very much okay bye for sure for sure uh interest i didn't play the clip but tanahasi coast was interviewed they were talking to him about the police situation as well uh and he had come to the same conclusion that he also had stopped watching uh these police videos uh and almost had the same logic that i've been saying that there's he just didn't see what he was gonna what new information was going to be gleaned from watching the latest black person bludgeoned beaten shot killed he just didn't didn't understand what uh what would be gained uh from watching the latest uh snuff flick of a black person uh, we miss anybody? Or did we get everybody that dialed in? Did we get everybody? Grand. I think we got everybody. Folks who uh, had additional commentary that they wanted to make sure they share, uh, regardless if we heard from you or not, if you had other things that you wanted to comment on or share, feel free. Yes, briefly. Uh, one of the uh, one of your earlier callers, I thought uh, what what. Uh, he was saying was was significant how uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, white people who claim to be counter racist uh, are being uh, posted on non white black people's uh, uh, Facebook accounts, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I say VGQ first first and foremost. But uh, it's, a, it's a strategy, basically, uh, to uh, attempt to influence non-white black people in order to influence non-white black people to take more of a serious uh, understanding and interest into uh, codified counter-racist uh, 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 thought and action. Uh, they would use a uh, uh, some clip that they have of a white person. The latest person I saw was Miss Jane Elliott, which uh, has been on your program uh, more than once. Uh, I've, I've observed that same strategy. And, and to me, and I, I say again, VGQ, uh, what, it, it, what it actually does when I, it, it, in my thoughts, is it kind of like, uh, elevates that uh, that white person to a celebrity status, you know, in 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 a, in a sense, and uh, and they really they really aren't doing anything, uh, and and uh, and and who who says it's not accurate that the reason why they go about doing what they do anyway is to become celebrities in some sort of way. Uh, uh, especially around black people and they may they may use their lectures in front of white people uh in order to obtain that because it's certainly that seems to be the results 
of 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 this of the, the Timothy Wise, the Jane Elliotts, and the rest of that uh, group of white people. Uh, and when you look at it in a uh, critical sense, there's no results to uh, what they're saying and save their doing. Uh, that's all I had to say. Thank you. I actually spoke to uh, Mr. Fuller this week about that, or I didn't even call him to talk about that, but he brought it up uh, and he said that uh, this small little group, he almost said exactly what Dr. Cambon said, this small little group of whites, uh, Timothy Wise, Jane Elliott, you could put Norm Stamper in that group as well. I think there was a white woman who wrote some article talking about Black Lives Matter and she included her uh, black abducted offspring uh, that she has as well. She had a picture of them. Uh, but she said uh, all of them, they were talking about the police shootings and everything and talking about racism. But Mr. Fuller, he said that they are totally insignificant and they just reap mass confusion on black people. He said that's been his observation for decades, uh, going all the way back to the 50s and 60s, uh, that you'll always have a handful of whites that will come out and cry and hand ring and want to hug on some black people. And, oh, this is terrible. Racism is bad. And it's not all of us. We need to solve this. But that it just wreaks mass confusion on black people. That is the end result. And at the end of the day, they are not worth anything they are completely insignificant in comparison to the droves of whites who are totally dedicated to racism white supremacy they end up solving no problems for black people uh, and i just take the position that all of these uh whites that are coming out and doing this timothy wise jane because timothy wise was on news one this week and other programs doing the same thing i just take the position that they are willfully deliberately coming to cause confusion they know i think we talked about it on the program a lot we are looking searching for that good white person uh who's going to love us and not going to be racist a white validation white identification that's how we're all groomed to be under this system that they know this and they're coming to exploit that. And as Mr. Fuller suggests, causes mass confusion with our understanding of racism. And I would even say, if you can look at the way that these folks articles and papers or whatever books gets presented and compare that to a Dr. Welsing or an Amos Wilson or Dr. Marimba Ani or anybody else that's a black person, even you, <laughs> anybody that's on this call right now, the way that these, the, the regard that, that will be given to these white folks when they come out and whatever they're going to say, as opposed to a black person, when they're coming out to present, it is nauseating. Uh, and I will pause there. But Norm Stamper should be here on Monday. I am looking forward to that. Uh, other folks have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, um, I, I, I was, uh, um, this is Ken again. Uh, I just wanted to say, yeah, as we were speaking, um, one of, uh, a person on my uh, Facebook friends list, a fellow victim, uh, posted some picture of Che Guevara with some, uh, I think, Congolese warfighters, and he was talking about how uh, great Che Guevara was, and I pointed out to him that, hey, Che Guevara made blatantly white supremacist comments, and these comments have been published in books that he authored, and he was, you know, very combative with me at this point, you know, insisting that, hey, you know, Che Guevara, he's done all these great things, and, you know, they say that he, you know, fought desegregation, and I'm just letting, I let him know that, hey, 
you know, I, I know that, you know, they're reporting all of this stuff uh, on this article, but all of that comes after the direct quotes where he is saying very harsh things about black people in general. And then he, uh, I guess he blocked me after I pointed out that Che Guevara is a lot like many other white supremacists or suspected white supremacists who are frequently surrounded by non-white people um, at, despite having a history of making racist comments. I have people I included in this uh, example were Justin Bieber, um, what's his name, Eminem, uh, Dylan Roof. All of these people had non-white people all around them. And despite this, uh, you know, and were non-white people who considered them friends. And despite this, uh, they still practiced white supremacy um, unabated. And, I, you know, I think it was just very telling that this person was willing to block me over just a comment where I posted quotes from Che Guevara making racist remarks. So that's just something that I'm seeing is that these people who are supposedly here to help us, these, uh, you know, white allies of ours, they frequently function as agents of confusion and division amongst victims of white supremacy. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, like you said, it's very nauseating to have to deal with this. And it's very frustrating because all of this is happening right in our faces. And still these victims are um, in very deep denial. For sure. Uh, other folks uh, have commentary they want to make sure they get in, uh, closing in on the end of the broadcast. If you have uh, other things that have popped up since you were able to speak before, anything you want to make sure you get in before we conclude? Oh, uh, can I be heard? One more thing. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, just a heads up. Uh, as things are getting more intense, uh, they're starting to have new Facebook codes. I know that uh, you mentioned, um, I, I know that you mentioned you had the clip earlier uh, that had um, so many reported uh, posts on Facebook happened in these last couple of weeks. But one of the things that they're screening for is uh, threats against police. Now, these statements don't have to be direct threats. They can be as simple as, saying something like Mike Xavier Johnson was a martyr and they're literally arresting people. I know that two people in Detroit last week were arrested for uh, Facebook posts that were simply sympathetic to the gunman in uh, or the alleged gunman in Texas or in Dallas. So that's just something that, you know, I, uh, your, your listeners should be aware of is that, um, you know, they are on the hunt. Um, be very, very careful of what you're posting on social media. I did say that earlier this week that I would discourage uh, using 
uh, photograph of Micah Xavier Johnson as like your avatar on Facebook because I saw some people doing that as your profile pic. I would not, or Twitter or whatever social media you're on, I would not encourage that. As I think I said earlier this week, I can see how whites could make that a major problem for you in this environment. Other folks, commentary they wanted to get in before we wrap up? We have a few minutes left. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, first uh, question, Gus. Uh, I think it was that segment about the uh, NBA players. Like uh, that, I believe that was a commentator. He said that at a game or something or some kind of event, they uh, they show all lives matter. Did that take place all like after that or something like that? He was saying. Uh, that was Clinton Yates. He's a black male. He's uh, at the Washington Post and other outlets. Uh, that was at the Forum in Los Angeles. Or it's not the Forum. It's the Staples Center now. The Staples Center, uh, the WNBA team for L.A. I think that's the L.A. Sparks. They were playing, and they had it on the Jumbotron uh, that All Lives Matter. They had that on the Jumbotron. I think that was sometime after the Dallas shooting and everything. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. And uh, it was a... Uh Another story about a uh, black female, uh, I think a five-year-old child was, I, I guess, threatened by uh, a race soldier, speaking of social media, and I think the guy got fired or something like that. Did, did you hear about that story? Mm, no, I don't believe so. And, I mean, I think eventually he's probably going to apply at another station so, you know, they have those infinite connections. So, uh, yeah, that, yeah, I agree with that. Being careful on uh, social media. And uh, I believe the guy said something about, you know, hold, hold your uh, child tight because it's going to be the last time or something. You know, so he made a, a blatant threat, in my opinion. So, and then, like, on a, uh, a video, she was like, she did not forgive him, from my understanding. So that's that definitely a, a thing that stood out. So, yeah, she said she, she did not forgive him. Wow. I'd see if I can find a uh, link for that so I can check out a little bit more info on that. But I would not be – white people do not get fired. They get transferred. Mm. Anything else folks want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up? Last uh, two minutes. Everybody satisfied? That's uh, cool in the gang as well. Well, they have um, they have posted an article earlier this year about um, these Twitter robots. Um, Twitter bots, I guess they they post things, and um, this this is one of the reasons why they use that um, that decoding system. I think I told you last week how sometimes when I try to access the page, um, they give me like this spell this word out and it's decrypted, and it's um, always those type of things that want you to check. You know, you're not a robot. And um, a lot of things that get posted isn't even posted by a human being. Um, so to keep that in mind, I believe they say something like 40% of the stuff that's posted on 
social media is posted by one of these robots. Absolutely. That's why I said when it's come up before about people having disputes and things on social media, just be careful about it at all. If you are going to use it and just be really mindful uh, that racists created this technology for them, not for us. Uh, just keep all that in mind. I did find the post about the, the Kansas officer. That is quite chilling. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but it says uh, Facebook user Rodney Lee published the comment. Uh, at 11.50 p.m. last Thursday on Lenadra Williams' Facebook page. We'll see how much her life matters soon. He wrote beneath a two-year-old photo of Williams' daughter, India. Better be careful leaving your info open where she can be found. Hold her close tonight. It'll be the last time. And they confirmed uh, that this was an enforcement officer with the Overland Park Police Department. But, uh, yeah, that is race soldiers and i'm sure he'll be re-employed in some enforcement department uh hopefully not in an area near you soon uh anybody else comment they want to get in before we wrap up last minute oh we got everybody everybody's good I will assume folks are satisfied. We should be here uh, tomorrow, uh, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. There have been so many global events, not just stuff that's happened in the States. A lot of that has ended up being big international news as well. But lots of stuff happening uh, around the world. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow, our international listeners, to kind of get their thoughts, perspectives. We'll be interesting to see their thoughts on how the things in the States have been reported uh, worldwide, what their perspective is, but that'll be tomorrow. And then again, Norm Stamper will be here uh, this Monday, uh, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you cannot find something in the archives, uh, if you have a question, guest suggestion, gripe, uh, feel free, drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com dot com on twitter at until justice and you can go to the uh, cows facebook pages uh multiple uh pages out there i'm sure you can just do a facebook search and put in context the white supremacy and they should uh pop up again you can drop an email as well if you need info uh invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported the program seven plus years. Uh, Hope the program, the cows, has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, With that, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, This is not a time that you want to be lax in your codification. Uh, Let's do everything that we can to make sure that we are in the correct frame of mind so we can make phenomenal decisions. You never know when you are going to be in contact with a race soldier, badge or no. Uh, If you're in a vehicle, you do not want to be intoxicated, whether you are the driver, passenger, even if you're a pedestrian. You do not want to be under the influence should you be stopped by a Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, 
Uh, that could be the last five minutes of your life. You being under the influence is not going to make that situation go any better. It's going to make their job way easier. However, they want to use and abuse you. Let's buckle up every time we're behind the wheel uh, in a vehicle. Uh, let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. Uh, with that, we will be here uh, in about 12 hours uh, tomorrow. Looking forward to hearing from folks then. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the program. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.